0: This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things mecha, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. PMC, this is a very exciting episode for numerous reasons. About to start new coverage, and we've got an extra special guest today. How excited are you?
1: I'm very excited. I feel like we have um, already a track record here of going back and evaluating some of the things that I think are unfairly maligned. Uh, you know, uh, one of those is going to be very relevant or almost a predecessor to our conversation today. Of course, I'll also mention, of course, the war for Earth, another thing close, near, and dear to my heart. And I feel like we we've done some work uh, encouraging you know reevaluations or evaluations in context of these works, and so we got we got another one of these today that I'm I'm very excited to get into.
0: Yeah, um, we're, we are covering the first Igloo OVA, which we'll talk about a bit later. But so many Gundam shows in the last five to let's say in the last five years, mainly due to rewatch podcasts, have been reevaluated: Double Zeta, O Eighth Team, Char's Counterattack, G Savior. Um, Igloo, though, I feel doesn't have enough eyes on it for better or for worse. And I don't have the answer personally um from my own perspective just yet because I haven't actually watched any of the three episodes because I've been so busy with this history episode and doing copious amounts of research. um So I'm, I'm looking forward to diving in and appraising for the first time um, Mobile Suit Gundam Igloo or MS Igloo, really. Well, we'll talk about the name soon enough. Um, but we're not alone. We are joined by Mark Simmons. Mark, welcome back to the podcast.
2: Hey, good to be here. It's hard to believe it's been like half a year already. For me, it's like six minutes. This year has been a blur. So I had to go back and like double check the uh, date stamps on things and go, wow, that was really that long ago. So, but it seems like only yesterday. Good to be back.
0: Yeah, podcasting really warps your sense of time. Now, Mark, before we jump into some warm up questions here, Who are you? Because number one, a lot of our listeners might be aware of you, but not be able to put a name to the personality. And number two, you've been offline for a while, so a reintroduction might be in order.
2: Okay, well, that's a kind of existential question. Who am I? What am I? Um, Well, let's see. Uh, I'm, I guess, most relevantly here, one of my kind of side hustles is I do a lot of consulting work for uh, Bandai and the former Sunrise related to basically uh, the Gundam series. Most of that is focused on uh, the English uh, adaptations and uh, U.S. releases. But at this point, I also I'm also kind of on call anytime they need English text translation or name spellings and so on for the original. Um, Productions, so every now and then I'll get kind of an email from the studio going, "Hey, uh, we have this like giant wall of text that will appear like for like half a second in the background of a shot, and we need it, you know, translated by tomorrow." And I'm like, "Okay, well, time to do the thing, go to work." Uh, So it's this kind of uh, English language stuff for Gundam, but I've been involved in one capacity or another with the. Whole thing for probably about twenty five years, and before that, I guess I was in the fandom for a decade or thereabouts. So I've kind of been there in the atmosphere, wafting around like uh, fragments of access or something, probably as long as many fans have been alive. Uh, so I'm kind of like a piece of the piece of the furniture, really. I'm infrastructure from the uh, fandom
0: standpoint. <laughs> you're channeling your inner Tomino with that description i appreciate it
2: you know i've been wow. going i've been going through and doing a lot of interview I, I, one of my current preoccupations is i'm doing these production history articles on the classic shows which involves a lot of interview translation and a lot of Tomino interview translation, and he talks a lot about being an old guy, so you feel kind of the years settling onto your shoulders as you're going through that. It's like, yep, yep, old, old, we're all old now. So old, so old, one day we'll die, the world will go on old. So,
0: that's fun. It's the kids that matter. Maybe the kids are all right, Tomino. Yoshiku Tomino.
2: That is the, that is a through line, a thematic through line. I think one of my favorite, memorable kind of Tomino convention appearance bits. I think it may have been in uh, a New York show he was at, where one of the audience questions was, uh, you know, hey, uh, I feel like one of the themes in Gundam is that all people are the enemy, and you're old, so does that mean you're the enemy? And, he's, and he replies <laughs> in English, yes, I'm super old, so I'm a super enemy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something I can aspire to.
0: They teed up that question perfectly for him. Mark, if I go to Bandai Namco Filmworks, formerly known as Sunrise, and name drop you, will people, will they nod their head and go, yes, Mark Simmons? If I go to the uh, security guard, will they know who you are?
2: <laughs> uh,
0: Before <no>. they escorted <laughs> out of the building?
2: I, f- I feel like I probably have some kind of reputation there. I'm not sure what on earth it would be. Um, okay. I don't, especially in the current era, I don't get out very much. So a lot of these people I just know through email. And, you know, I think probably I have this sensation that I'm being talked about behind my back, but I have absolutely no idea whether it's good or
0: bad. Um, That's the human existence, Mark. That's that's, That's being human.
2: Yeah. They do keep putting... Mysterious characters named Simmons into the shows, but I think that may just be because they're like, "Oh, we need a generic like Westerner name." Uh, what's that? What's that one I heard the other? Oh, Simmons. Sure, that's a really standard, typical Western name. I don't think it's because I'm being homage. I think it's the concept of mm. people named Simmons existing in the West that is being homage. Is my theory?
0: We'll make it so you deserve the the credit, Mark. It's headcanon now which is the best kind of cannon. <laughs> yeah.
2: That is the double-zated secret Mark. weapon, head cannon.
0: True. Now, Mark, uh, this is not an understatement. You've Online, you've definitely been missed. Uh, I'm sure it's a net positive for you overall, but any words of reassurance you'd like to tell your fans, like let them know you're doing all right? You have updated your website recently-ish, so you still have a footprint online. People can read your words.
2: You know, I think... When I, I when I bailed on Twitter as a kind of little idiosyncratic, you know, protesty kind of thing, I'm like, yeah, I'm out of here. This is too Philip K. Dickey for me. Um, but uh, I had the notion I was gonna put together some kind of mailing list and pursue other avenues to blah blah blah. And then I just got really busy. Like the past six months have been a blur of nonstop art deadlines. I was doing comic Mm. after comic after opera after animated movie thing. And just, and just, ah, it was a a blur. And by the time I kind of woke up and looked around six months later, I was like, oh, I've probably dropped out of sight a fair bit. Um, So I need some kind of outreach strategy because otherwise I'm just yammering to my wife all day long. At some point I need to turn my preoccupations towards uh, the outside world just to give her a break. But, um. I did. I do post occasionally on the Blue Sky.
0: Yes, I did see your account. I was going to ask you about that.
2: But I think the nice thing about Twitter was that it was kind of uh, one stop shopping for all the different things that you're into. When I sort of got back into Gundam fandom, that was on Twitter. And then the paleontology and paleo art stuff is also on Twitter. And people who really like bugs also on Twitter. So you could kind of stand in one place and engage with everything you're interested in. And I think that may not come back. Right now, there's a lot of the the y stuff has largely reconstituted itself on Blue Sky. And I think the... I feel like the fandom stuff, I'm not seeing it. A lot of the people who I engage with on Twitter have a Blue Sky account, but they don't post to it. I, f- I don't know if there's some kind of big, central Kevin Bacon connection, poobah, is at some point going to go, okay, I'm officially decamping, come with me and we'll continue the conversation over here. And then all of a sudden, everybody will just, shoo, teleport over. But... Uh, Right now, it's... Yeah, there isn't really a dialogue space for that kind of conversation. Which I miss, but maybe it'll come back someplace in the future.
0: Uh, c- completely cosign. As someone who reluctantly is still on Twitter, um, I agree with everything you're saying.
2: But uh, I was... I was bending my wife here on this, as I do on many subjects... And I'm saying, yeah, I can't. You know, I do miss it. I don't really. I I miss Twitter when it was nice, and I don't really have that now. And she's like, well, you know, it's more to life than just you know, getting a lot of likes. And like, no, it's not the likes. I miss the conversations.
0: The likes certainly help, though.
2: Well, it's not. I think this is where the where you can go really badly wrong managing social media networks, assuming that everybody who's on it wants the exact same thing. True. So. I think I've been, to the extent I have a soul and I've been, had time to search it, I think that was kind of the draw for me, was just being able to chit-chat through the course of the day with people I like about stuff we like. That was it for me. That was the, the selling point. And right now there isn't something that provides that, that I'm comfortable with being on. But if, it, if something like that comes along, I'll hop back on and get back to it, because I miss you all.
0: And <laughs> well, we miss you. Yeah, I I haven't pulled the trigger. So we have giant robot FM accounts. At, well, we have the giant robot FM account, and we have the Mecha Day account on Blue Sky. I'm just thinking to myself now, if someone's listened to this episode in five years, and Blue Sky no longer exists, this episode's going to sound really dated. Um, but I haven't made a personal account yet, just because of inertia and... I don't know, just, it's not there quite yet, blue sky. Austin Walker put it best. There's, it's just full of posters. Your ordinary person isn't on there. Um, so it's a little too, it's a little too online, if you know what I mean.
1: <laughs> it's it's a great place to make comments to your fellow poster, but, you know, I all the other things that I would use social media for, you know, commuting, communicating to various people communities like you know speedrunning, gundam other you know other fandoms you don't really have that you know that outlet that you you did on on twitter uh, and of course you know but twitter is also eroded you know very like 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 mark here you know a lot of people have very reasonably left the platform for very understandable reasons uh, and so you know it's kind of uh you're, you're caught between one thing falling apart and, and the other thing not really, you know, being home except for, you know, the most online people. Um, and also, I mean, another thing too, I mean, there's an international quality to Twitter. I, I feel like a lot of times when I talk to Gundam posters, one of the things that they, they're bemoaning is that Japanese Twitter has not really moved, uh, you know, to blue sky, for example. And I think, you know, especially if you're in interests that cross, you know, countries and languages, that was really important. You know, like, like like when I do armored core speed running or posting about Gundam, the chance or the opportunity to have some sort of crossover to Japanese Twitter is like a viable resource because I may learn things that I wouldn't
2: have otherwise. You know, it was fashionable for a long time for people to, you know, complain about Twitter and go, "Oh, it's the hell site." Uh, blah blah. But no, like G Savior, Twitter. When when it was when it was good it was it was good. It was yeah. a nice thing that kind of seems like it's going away and I'm going to miss it and I hope we get something else nice that kind of serves some of those needs. But it was a capital G, capital T good thing. It was a it was really a nice conversation space for the entire world and all the different facets of the world that I personally was interested in. So, you know, not to say that we're going to have that back or that we all need to wheedle blue sky sign-up codes and try and transplant it over there immediately. It's, these things are organic. It'll happen or it won't. It'll happen someplace or it won't, or it'll happen someplace else. Or maybe it won't happen again for ten years and then we'll all be even older and more super enemy. But, you know, we'll, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll see each other again. <laughs> in a new space beyond the time could happen
1: that's a, that's a great for anyone listening to this because you're probably you're probably more similar to you know the the ages of the speakers here anyone listening to this uh f- find your youngest family members and ask them if they're <laughs> on blue sky that'll be a real
0: temperature check you know
1: <laughs> steven ask are any of your students on blue sky do you know
0: i will ask tomorrow okay i thought never occurred to me to ask probably <laughs> not though they probably, <laughs> probably not right probably not yeah. exactly I can almost guarantee it. I'll go to the most online. Um, three of my um, most online, three of my more online students were having a, a very spirited conversation about Resident Evil Four in the hallway when I was leaving work. So I'll ask them. Okay, what they good to say. They'll, they'll, that, that's a, that's the right resource to go to, yeah. You know? Though that could take a turn, though, because given the tenor of their conversation, not only might they be on Twitter, they might be happy with the management of Twitter. Oh uh, well, yes. Act- <laughs> Darker things await, perhaps. With age comes wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> Before we jump into the topic, and that is MS Igloo, uh, I want to lay a little, or I guess not lay some groundwork, but provide some context. Um, we are, for this Giant Robot FM miniseries, we'll only be covering the first OVA, Hidden One Year War. Um, this is a patron request, request courtesy of our good friend Zappa Slave, um, who you can hear on our G Savior PS2 episode. Um, so we will only be covering the first three episodes of Igloo, um, but there are more. Mark, can you delineate the lineage of Igloo? Because it's not a, sh- a straight arrow if you look at the names, because it doesn't go Igloo one, Igloo two, Igloo three. It goes Igloo, Igloo, Igloo two.
2: Yes. I think you could reasonably think of the first two series as being two halves of the same thing. It does seem it was always conceived of as being six episodes, plus or minus. There was apparently a point in time when they were thinking of seven, and then they cut it back. So it's an extra episode that was plotted out, but not didn't go further in production. But apparently, well, we're going to get into why Igloo happened soon enough. Um... Uh, and even earlier, the request that they were initially given was to create a feature film. And Sunrise was like, no, we got enough on our plate. Like, okay, well, how about we do it in installments? So they did the first three in pretty quick succession to fulfill the initial order. They had a specific anniversary they were trying to create it for. And then they kind of soaked in that for a little bit and got the reaction. And then completed that story with uh, the second series, which was Apocalypse 0079. The first one was done initially as a short film series for screening at a museum and only belatedly released on video. The second one, the the second series, which is basically the second half of MSA Glue, was straight to video. By that point, the museum had closed. Or actually had it closed? Let me check my Handy timeline. I may be conflating things. Ah, no. Um the last episode of double of Apocalypse 079 was released right before the museum closed. But that so that's the museum was still open when they did the second half of the story, but they didn't premiere it as screenings at the museum. They just went straight to video. So we have Hidden One You War, three short films initially screened at museum, released on video later. Apocalypse 0079 is basically episodes 4 through 6, which was straight to video. After the museum closes, sometime later they come back and do MSA Glue 2, which is really a separate story um, about different characters. that's told from the other side, and that was a very explicit uh, plastic model time that was also released uh, straight to video, but it actually was very tightly connected to a series of um, military-oriented scale kits that Bandai was releasing. So they kind of have three different um, commercial strategies attached to them. But Hidden One Year War and Apocalypse 0079 are basically one continuous story with the same set of characters and one kind of continuous theme. MS Glue 2, I think, is a... Compl- Even though it's the same people making it, it's new story, new characters, new setup, new premise, new model, new everything. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Given Gundam and anime naming conventions, that is more straightforward than your average trajectory. <laughs> Even though you could be a throne for a bit of a loop with OVA number 3 being Igloo 2, as you framed it, it's, it is understandable.
2: It's kind of like when they split a Harry Potter book into two movies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And to be honest, I don't think Igloo is not Igloo. Not enough people are aware of Igloo or unfortunately care about Igloo um, for this to be an issue. All right, my friends, are you ready to dive in? I'm very excited. This is a fully fledged history episode from the ground up. It's been a while since we've done one of these. um, So buckle up. Thank you. Before we get into it, I want to start off this episode by challenging a perception that I feel is entrenched in some parts of the fandom. Because Igloo centers on an R&D unit tasked with developing new technology, there are fans who discount it on the grounds that it's egregiously commercial, that the 603rd technical evaluation unit functions as a narrative smokescreen to launch new model kits. But that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, MS Igloo might be the Gundam property with the least amount of corporate interference, period. Quote, of course, this is from the world of Gundam, Takashi Imanishi, the director of Igloo, remembers. So it derived from the merchandise, but what was so different was that the only merchandise used at the starting point were the images, and the project was created with no plans to make toys or plastic models afterwards. End quote. Which, for a mecha production, is certainly not the norm. Am I right in this, Mark?
2: I guess this is something that I've been delving very deeply into and is increasingly fascinating when you get into the nitty-gritty of it. Um, TV series were definitely to drive toy sales. And we're almost kind of planned. You go to the toy company first or the model company first and get their buy-in before you start hiring on stuff and making the show. Because you got to know that there's a business model behind it. And for a Gundam or anime or mecha TV, well, let's say for a giant robot TV series, it's about the toys. The model for OVAs, when those launched in the yeah late 80s, was different because you make your money directly from the video sales. And so it didn't matter if they were toys. They did do models for the um, various Gundam OVAs, but at least at first it was an afterthought. That was, I think, with 0083, they belatedly made model kits. Oh, we should probably commercialize this somehow. And they were surprised by how well they sold because uh, they hadn't, factored that into the business plan it was just going to be we're going to sell videos um and so there's different reasons to do things i think when we were talking about g savior i was arguing that that was the least commercial gun name ever because there was no business model for any of it they it was just a demonstration project a sort of anniversary celebration kind of Hey, notice this in the West. Let's kind of open up some licensing avenues. You know, build up our technology, build up Sunrise's technology base. There were a lot of reasons to do G Savior, but as far as I can tell, none of them had anything to do with making money. So with MS Igloo, it wasn't to sell toys, and it wasn't to sell videos, but it was to kind of draw a very very hardcore segment of the fan base out to the. Museum that Bana had opened in Matsudo, which again, we're going to get to the museum. This is basically all about the museum. It was requested by the museum for their one year anniversary. Everything about it was calculated to be how do we get people to come from Tokyo or from other major cities in Japan, get on the train, come out, see this museum? What's going to really kind of pander to the really intense, hardcore segment of the fan base? So. If there was a commercial application, there was a commercial application of selling museum tickets. It's like, come see this thing we made it for you. This is exactly what you want. You, the most hardcore segment of the fan base. But I think everything about it is done with that in mind. As much as G Savior was about being a, trying to be approachable and to, to people who didn't know Gundam, people who weren't in Japan, to kind of package up the the most charming things about Gundam and kind of go, this is basically what Gundam's about but we're not going to use that word because we don't want to scare you. MS Igloo, it's like, we're not going to use the word Gundam because you're above it. Calling things Gundams for kids and noobs. You know, you're, you're too cool to expect to see, like, a white mobile suit. We're not even going to put one in here. We don't even want to put in the title. It's like, you're too cool for Gundam. This is about the Gundam world so i know there's a do
0: they they use the word gundam once in the ova do you remember mark because that's now a running through line um running throughout the episodes that you're on we're covering something that is gundam but does not deliberately does not use the word gundam um
2: i don't think so i just watched um the third episode uh, I was re-watching uh, Hidden One You Wore in prep for this, and I didn't note down whether or not they actually say the word Gundam in that one, but I don't think they do. Um, in fact, uh, they weren't even going to put Mobile Suit Gundam in the title of the thing. The uh, Bandai visual producer, that was his one request. Right? Like <laughs> Guys, cut me a break here. If we're going to be selling this thing on video sooner or later, it's got to say Gundam in it, even if it's in tiny letters up at the top. Just put it in there. Put it. In. That's all I ask. My one ask. It doesn't have to be a Gundam, but put it. In, put it on the box. But they didn't even want to do that. I just wanted to call it MS Igloo. Like, if you don't know what MS means, this isn't for you. So, is that commercial? I don't know. It's, it seems to be very fan servicey.
0: Yeah. Catering to, stressing that this catered to the hardcore crowd is really a smart thing to bring up in the beginning. I think now you can compare this marketing move to the Hathaway's Flash films and Thunder, the Thunderbolt OVAs. Like, here's a little something, here's a little One Year War content, a little UC Gundam content for all you 30 to 55 year olds out there. Or older.
2: Yeah. I think in a broader sense, if we're conjuring up some kind of overarching narrative of 40 years of this whole thing we're kind of seeing the stage where Gundam had become entrenched enough and reliable enough that they could start to curve up that audience cake Um, you have in by the mid 90s you're getting this kind of split where you have SD Gundam is for grade schooler. And then there's stuff that clearly is catering to adult fans. with disposable income, like the OVA series. And then kind of mid-range stuff where we put Gundam on TV and try and draw new audiences who are in like middle school and high school. And that kind of continues to where you have stuff that's being done that you're in the 2000s. When MS Igloo comes out, you have things like Gundam Seed had already aired. You have... Stuff that's aimed at older fans, stuff that's aimed at new fans, stuff that's aimed at people who don't know Gundam, stuff aimed at people who, like, think of nothing but Gundam. It's increased—Gundam had become big enough that they could kind of pursue a lot of these different audiences rather than trying to do one thing which would please everyone.
0: And I always bring this up on these history episodes with Gundam. It's so interesting. It might seem like a reductive take, but it's really interesting um, to— watch or I guess analyze the trajectory of the Star Wars franchise in the United States and globally um, with the trajectory of the Gundam series um, in Japan and also globally uh, to see how these juggernaut of a franchises evolve over time and cater to different sets of fans because the older fans always want the one-year war content the older Star Wars fans often want to return to the aesthetics of A New Hope And also, speaking of Igloo, um, both, um, I guess, Lucasfilm and our Sunrise decided to experiment with CG at roughly the same time. Clone Wars came a little later, but still, it's fun to compare the two.
2: Well, there must be, there's probably some even broader story about the role that CG played in the development of the whole multimedia entertainment complex at that point in time, that, uh, I mean, obviously people think about stuff like Jurassic Park and so on as being landmarks in the development of that, but uh I think when we're, there's maybe a different detail story to be told about how people with existing stories and franchises and works Tr- looked at bringing this in and how they would kind of merge it into what they were doing
0: yeah that would make a really interesting topic of a book I can just imagine it now different chapters dedicated different franchises and when they decided to take the dip the the, the full dive into CGI like with a Star Wars or Gundam or Star Trek for example I'm choosing low hanging fruit here but um, they're the ones that come to mind first And we're actually going to talk about a few other examples of it later on. Now, some people discount Igloo on more qualitative grounds. I imagine that's fair, having not seen Igloo yet. We'll have more to say about that once we dive into the episodes themselves. Point being, the origins of MS Igloo, as these things usually go, was a confluence of multiple factors, both financial and artistic. By the turn of the millennium, the first waves of Japanese animators, those who had propelled anime from a form of fringe filmmaking to the celebrated medium it is today, were aging. And are still aging. Studios were sitting on decades of history to preserve and share, and yes, monetize. As a result, a crop of museums sprung up during the early 2000s to do this curation work. And yes to sell merchandise. Just to name a few, there's the Ishinomori Manga Museum, which opened in 2001, the Studio Ghibli Museum, which opened in 2001, and the Suginami Animation Museum, which opened in 2005. Now, Mark, I'm sure you've been to Japan once or twice in your life. Have you ever been to a manga and or anime museum before?
2: Um, fun you should ask, I've been to the Gundam Museum. Uh, I didn't dig through my old passports to figure out exactly when that was, but, uh, it was shortly after it opened, and they, this is before MS Glue came out. So probably, like, late 2003, uh, my wife and I went, we took the train out to Matsudo, we looked at the giant Zaku head, and I think they were screening, um, Green Divers, the planet the former planetarium show that was done for gundam uh, before MS glue came out so yeah uh, we saw it it was it was fun it was kind of a cool thing um, so uh, when we talk about the gundam museum I I have a direct first-hand 20 year old personal experience to fall back on Uh and then I guess it's not really a museum, but when I was in Japan in like 2019, I think I did go look at the giant transforming unicorn
0: Okay, cool i'm I am very angry with myself for not making the pilgrimage to that specific location while I was in Japan, also in 2019.
2: It's surprised I didn't run into you, but that's because I went there, and you didn't) <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I didn't even see the RX seventy two. When did that open, Mark? Do you know? Was that that was pre pandemic or no? Oh.
3: I you
2: the mean time, the,
0: like walking, I one the yeah.
3: walking one?
2: Mm-hmm. I think it was post. I think that just post? opened like
0: like, okay. I
2: want to say like two years ago in Oklahoma.
0: I feel a little better about not visiting it then.
2: <laughs> I think it's gonna be open for a few more months. You can still do it.
0: I will bring that up to my wife after we're done recording. I will see what she says. I'll get back to you. I know we're massively in debt, but, honey, do you want to make another trip to Japan? We only need uh, eight grand, maybe?
2: It'll pay for itself in um, experience.
0: <laughs> yeah, true. i will pay dividends. Speaking from experience, because I did mention my trip to Japan, obviously I'm a card-carrying weeb. I went to the Studio Ghibli Museum. Uh, Maybe I'll try to post some pictures on social media. Um, You've seen it before, no doubt, you the listener. Um, Very cozy aesthetic, very quaint. Um, The cafe was so crowded I couldn't get into it. Um, We're going to talk about how these museums screen exclusive content, but I did see one of the Ghibli shorts. Oh, man. Oh, man. I should have prepped this because I meant to. Um, there, There's a rotating slate of like nearly half a dozen um, short films that screen at the Ghibli Museum. I would say 78% of them directed by Miyazaki, or at least having some input by Miyazaki. Um, but you really can't get any of these shorts in a physical form. Some of them have been released in a DVD years back, but like that's the exclusive draw to get you in there. And it worked on me. And I had a pretty good time overall. Looking back, I I'm not a merch guy, but I kinda wish I bought a bit more because we bought a plush cat bus for my for a for our future children, which hadn't been even conceived at that point. But my dog ripped ripped it to shreds. So now we have nothing. As these things go. When you go to the screening, actually, you get a cool little book. Well, I use it as a bookmark, but you get a little reproduction of a frame of animation, which I, I used to use as a bookmark, but I can't find it anymore.
2: You know, this is... I realize how, the moment I open my mouth, this is just uh, the worst digression ever. But thinking about keepsake souvenirs, uh, one thing that I got when I was in 2019 uh, that I brought back from my wife from the... Uh, where they have the unicorn statue, uh, the Gundam base, which is basically just a giant model shop. But yeah. uh, I went to the cafe there, and I got her an RX-78 mug, which is a nice souvenir because you use it all the time, and it's hard to lose. So you're like, oh, yeah. this is from the... this is from. So you think about it every day. The other thing I got on that trip was I needed some nail clippers, Um, So I went to the corner store and got some nail clippers, which we still have, they're nice clippers. And every time I clip my nails, I'm like, oh, this is from that Tokyo trip in 2019. So I think I would say the things that have, for me, have souvenir value, are things you use every day and things that are really hard to misplace.
0: I thought you were going to say you got Gundam branded nail clippers. I was trying to imagine what they would look like.
2: I don't know if those exist, but they should, because that would be a perfect souvenir. It's non, you know, unlike, a, say, a, a Zecrello chocolate bar, you're not going to use it up. Unlike a bookmark, it's hard to lose. Uh, it's just a question of thinking, what is your ideal, what is the best analog for, nail, for like, nail clippers in the Gundam And It might be something like a Salamis cruiser or something.
0: Mm, Yeah. I was trying to think of any, like, uh, mobile suit with, like, little, like, Scyther-like arms, to use a Pokemon reference. There's the, the Beggar Bow from which, for Mercury, I'm mispronouncing that, Who kn- the insect-looking thing from the prologue.
3: Yeah.
2: Something Swiss Army knifey maybe. You could do, like, the, uh, the um, G-Self Perfect Pack that kind of unfolds like a Swiss Army knife.
0: Hmm. That's what that's what Bandai Filmworks should be consulting you about, Mark. You're gonna get that email in your inbox in minutes. Now, speaking of Bandai, um, they're never one to leave money sitting on the table, and they opened their own museum, the and apologize. I'm apologizing now for the mispronunciation, but the Omocha Nomachi Bandai Museum, or Bandai Museum for short, on July 19th, 2003, in Matsudo. The original Bondi Museum was located in a nine-story building divided into exhibit and commercial floors. Notably, it housed the first Gundam-themed restaurant, the Gundam Cafe, R.I.P. Relevant to our discussion, the Gundam portion spanned half the seventh and eighth floors. Now, Mark, you mentioned you've been to the the original Gundam Museum, the original Bondi Museum. Anything stand out in your memory? I think... We did go
2: to the cafe, which was cute. Uh, just the novelty of having those uh, themed, themed beverages. And I think, honestly, of ever, all the exhibits there, I, I have the museum catalog. Oh. Uh, so I can refresh my memory because it's got kind of little pictures. As you can see, folks at home listening to this podcast, you can see me holding up the... Uh,
0: I see an O'Neill here. cylinder, so we know it's official.
2: Um, the thing which really stuck in our head was not... It had the kind of, like, upper body of the Gundam with a little platform so you can have pictures taken standing on its hand. But that wasn't the thing which stuck with us. When we were talking about it, we both... We both flashed back on the life-size Zaku head. Oh, wow. It's just in the center of the room. It's about as tall as a person. And you're just walking around it, looking at it. And I think because... What this, I think, had going for it that really spoke to the core goal of the museum was it had a provenance. This was described as you know, the conceit of the Gundam Museum. It's a museum that exists in the Gundam world that's presenting historical materials and historical artifacts and historical films. And this was a salvaged Zaku head. It's like military, military debris. It was being shown to you to commemorate you know a generation later, oh, this is an authentic like salvage zaku head, and as an exhibit, I think it really sold the point. It really seemed like you're seeing an authentic piece of like of historical memorabilia, so it not only was it a, a cool object, but I think the story came across most powerfully in that
0: yeah, I am certainly very critical of corporate commercialism um but when I the multiple times I've been to Disney and I've been to Galaxy's Edge I never not pop for the recreated Millennium Falcon PMCs look looking at me very critically here
1: <laughs> I the last time I went to Disney I was I I was a senior in high school and I was so bored of it after two days that I think I started sitting around the park reading a book instead of doing anything so that's uh that's where Stephen is that's where I am <laughs>
0: I don't disagree with them either.
2: I think at a certain point, like for some of us, we just kind of transfer that mindset to like someplace like Las Vegas. Hmm. Yeah. The, the conceit of things like uh, some of the more high concept Vegas hotels, like back when they were really into doing, you know, this is Paris or you know, this is Venice and doing this whole indoor simulacrum. It's a little bit like Ren Faire, or in San Francisco, we have this annual Dickens Christmas festival. Uh, where they have this whole warehouse place, uh, the Cow Palace down in South San Francisco. And they build this kind of fabricated Victorian London set every year. And they have like shops and food vendors and costumed reenactors. And you can go in costume and kind of like play along with them. And it's, it, it, so you're kind of LARPing in the theme park kind of thing. It has that kind of aspect where I want to kind of dive into this into this imaginary or historical world and kind of be as engaged with it or as distant from it as I choose to be and just kind of go on a little physical adventure with a lot of props and costumes and I think you know that's kind of like grown up Disneyland you could you could drag that out for your entire life and just you know, add booze <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: that's very true as the husband of a wife who is a card-carrying Disney cult member. Yes, that is the appeal. Now, like Disney, in addition to exclusive merchandise and seasonal exhibits, the Bondi Museum also had a theater where it premiered films. Now, keep in mind, this is an industry practice commonly used to drive up attendance. The Ghibli Museum, like I mentioned, has this down to a science, working through a rotating slate of shorts many directed by Miyazaki himself, to keep guests coming back. Recognizing the need for new content, Katsumi Kawaguchi, a longtime Bandai executive, became a producer on Igloo for this reason. By all accounts, and Mark, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Matsudo isn't a popular travel destination. A 40-minute drive from Tokyo, it's a commuter town, and thus not as culturally vibrant as other cities. Kawaguchi recognized this if you want people to think, let's go to Matsudo. You need something completely different. Hence the need for exclusive content. Mark, have you ever been to Matsudo before? Outside? Of, I guess you have been there, but you've been to the Bandai Museum. That was the only were you private, ever there before?
2: Uh, no. Why would we? <laughs> we went for <laughs> the, the Gangnam. Yeah, so the, the marketing worked. Kawaguchi, you got me. Damn you, Majun.
0: <laughs> now... Not to get ahead of ourselves, but Kawaguchi's anxieties about the museum's location were well-founded. Bandai closed the Matsuda location on August 31st, 2006, only to move it eight months later to Mibu, where it remains open to this day. Mark, do we know why the move? The, so the Matsuda location was open for three years. Was attendance dropping? Because so I only ask this because Mibu, Mibu is more out of the way. It's a roughly 90-minute train trip from Tokyo. So maybe it was a matter of rent.
2: I honestly, I don't know the the logic behind that. Um, I think the Bandai Museum they have in Mibu is a really different kind of operation. It's more of a kind of corporate mm. history kind of thing. Um, they okay. have like for some reason some kind of like Thomas Edison Museum thing in there as well. Uh, it's like it's a corporate it's a corporate museum. It's not a imaginary play space to dive into your childhood fantasies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so now I'm not imagining something like the Ghibli Museum. I'm imagining the Shinra Museum that you visit in Final Fantasy VII um, that just walks you through the hi- corporate history and with all the corporate propaganda.
2: That's kind of my impression, just based on the website, that they did not, it's not like they boxed up all of the giant Zaku heads and stuff and shipped it out to Amiibo. It's like, no, that, that ceased to exist, basically. I don't even know what happened to the props that. Life-size Gundam they would that they built later on. They would move it around. They would like disassemble it and then rebuild it somewhere else as like a new version or you know with new markings or the magnet-coated version. That thing went on like a road tour for a decade. Uh, the stuff from the original Gundam museum, I have no idea what happened to it. it. Might be like moldering in somebody's backyard.
0: Yeah, I'm just thinking the end of Raiders and <laughs> Sunrises or corporate office. Next to the crates, just this big Zaku head. Hopefully it'll be unearthed one day. I'm actually, I found someone's posted um, the photos they took on a trip to the Bondi Museum in 2003, like an old website, just um, collecting all their photos. And the Zaku head is, looks awesome. Like very chilling, but I would love to uh, stand in front of it.
2: It had presence, I think. It digression again not as bad as the nail clippers but when you're seeing a kind of heroic statue like the life-size gundam or the life-size unicorn you know it, it feels like a like a kind of like a statue like a celeb- commemoration of something glorious or like a like an artifact like a uh the Zaku head had a presence and a narrative to it. As I said, it really did feel like you're looking at historical artifact, which is not something you get from building a life-size Gundam that's like heroically pointing its rifle at the sky. You know, that's kind of like a giant toy, but the Zaku head felt like a relic. It, and I think that came across in the presentation and the design of it. It was actually a weirdly powerful experience. I'm not surprised that uh, that people took photos of it and that, that even came across in the photos that we've seen. That's kind of a cool thing. And that's maybe a good entry point to think about Igloo as a whole.
0: I love unearthing and discovering old websites from Web 1.0. It's so quaint. In addition, as Satoshi Kubo, a Bandai visual producer, remembers, quote, Museum officials had a desire to provide unique video content to commemorate its first anniversary. End quote. So, the timing was important. However, while the museum's anniversary inarguably was the driving force behind Igloo's creation, it wasn't the only celebration on the horizon. Coincidentally, or more likely, not so coincidentally, Igloo entered production in the run-up to the 25th anniversary of Gundam. Like we talked about in our G-Savior history episode, Sunrise has a history of going all out for its franchises decennials. Gundam, especially. Five Five years prior, to commemorate 20 years, Sunrise and Bandai launched their Big Bang Initiative, which included the debut of Turn A Gundam, G-Savior, the Endless Waltz-Miller's Report double feature, and numerous other multimedia and merchandising tie-ins. The 30th and 40th celebrations, while not as triumphal, were still important events. But what about the half-decade anniversaries? Like I said, Gundam stewards aren't ones to leave money on the table. But the 25th anniversary, while celebratory, was a more muted affair. There wasn't a ton of merchandise, no exclusive toy lines, and no custom logo. But Sunrise did mark the occasion with the TV debut of SD Gundam Force and the theatrical premiere of A New Translation, the first of the Zeta movie trilogy. Igloo, I get the sense at least, Igloo was positioned as a third pillar of sorts, catering to a more enthusiast crowd. So, Mark, am I missing anything here? 25 years of Gundam. Were there any big, um, I guess, initiatives or releases to mark the occasion?
2: I don't recall it being a big thing at the time. I think, if memory serves, this is also about the time uh, Seed Destiny came out, right? So 2004. But I part of this is, I, I suppose, is that, Bandai has a lot of franchises to shepherd that are constantly celebrating anniversaries. Um, I think last year was like the a big one for uh, our Votoms, and this year a lot of their focus has been uh, the 40th anniversary of Dunbine. So you know they've been doing a lot of like Dunbine hype. So poor old V Gundam kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit. There's been a little bit of your 30th anniversary of then, but it's not as big as the 40th of Dunbine. So you kind of get an accumulation of, of anniversaries to celebrate. I think they kind of have to, as a company, they just have to manage their resources. I don't think they really made a big deal about you know, the half-decade one.
0: Now imagining a world where Dunbine is a cultural phenomenon and you've got SD Dunbine to appeal to the youth you have like Dunbine Seed to draw in new viewers you know teenage, a- teenagers and then you have I guess just plain ass Dunbine to appeal to the enthusiast crowd which I guess would be like a reissue or reprinting of a Tomino novel or just a new adaptation of the novels
2: well they kind of almost did that with uh, the Wings of Reen anime adaptation, you're taking some obscure Tomino novel and going, We're gonna like you'll throw in some like fancy CG, show it off, make it look cool. I think I I think I was like two thousand six ish they were doing that. Which wasn't even key to a big Dunbine anniversary. So yeah, there's just a that's a lot of stuff to commemorate.
0: Building on what PMC said earlier, ask your family members about Blue Sky and then ask them what they're doing to celebrate the Dunbine celebration. See what they say. And then someone might say, oh, you mean Bistons well? (laughs) Dunbine humor. This is why people turn into Giant Robot FM.
2: Deep cuts. Nothing but deep cuts here.
0: They'll get deeper. Speaking of, let's talk about Studio DID. In September 1994, the Digital Video Development Office was founded within Sunrise. This sub-studio, better known as DID Studio, short for Digital Image Development, was initially established to see whether PCs could be used in the shooting process. Eventually, the studio became involved with video production that incorporated CG. Now Mark, we discussed the founding of DID with you in our G-Savior episode and before that with Megan in our Origin History episode. But I think a recap is in order. What was the purpose of this internal studio?
2: Computers. Basically, anything that had to do with using computers uh, in the Sunrise Undertakings fell under the uh, DID heading. Which means they had a production arm that was about initially using computers for shooting and compositing and using, uh, and using computers to uh, do the cleanup and painting, and kind of shifting traditional animation towards a digital end process. That was kind of under the DID umbrella, using computer graphics and merging uh, either to create full CG works or to integrate computer graphics into a cell animation workflow, also DID, uh, setting up websites and online services also did anything that had to do with those scary new computers. Um, it's kind of funny that uh, this was back before you had the uh, widespread use of the consumer internet. So you had uh, Sunrise set up a Sunrise station on a Nifty Serve, which I think was the Japanese version of CompuServe. And if you even know what CompuServe is, you're dating yourself. You're old. You're the enemy. Um, but the head of um, D.I.D., who we'll name check soon enough, was also decided, he was the sysop for the Sunrise Station on NiftyServe. So on top of all the other hats uh, this guy is wearing, he's also basically going on there and kind of like managing the message boards. Because that was, they didn't know at that <laughs> point, what's going to be big? Is it going to be, are we all going to be doing our robot shows on computers? Or is it going to be, you know, Managing message boards and booting people when they get too com- when they get too snarky. And- I know computer stuff, man. You deal with it.
0: Now, now you've got me imagining another timeline. As I grow older, I'm becoming more of a luddite, and I'm imagining. All right, we didn't advance CGI. Instead, the proto CGI companies all managed message boards, while we still had traditionally cell-based animation uh, on display on TV.
2: It would be a different world, maybe a better world? Who can say?
0: I'll, I'll put my uh, flag in the sand. I'm going to say it. it would be a better world.
2: But uh, over time, I think the notion of using computers for communication and outreach and promotion kind of receded, and Sunrise became basically a digital production house. Um, so by the late 90s, You're seeing D.I.D. pop up in the credits of a lot of Sunrise productions, doing things like uh, digital shooting, um, special effects, 3D modeling work. They weren't the only outfit that was doing that. There were a lot of outside freelance houses that Sunrise shows would use as well. And even another studio within Sunrise in the early 2000s that was kind of, I don't want to say competing, but kind of competing, uh, the Yahara studio also did some of the same kind of digi- uh, CG production work that DID was doing. But mostly DID were the guides where y- other Sunrise productions would call them in and go, hey, we need some CG, we need some computer stuff for this. Have at!" And every now and then you'd have something that was so heavily computer-based that DID would kind of take the lead on producing it. So Igloo being one example, and Origin, I think, kind of being another. At the point when they decided they were going to do that, they were going to do the robots and the sets with CG. Like, this is so computer that we're just going to hand it off primarily to you guys. Um, so they could do a little, they could do a lot, they could do it entirely, they could just come and do some special effects, whatever. And uh, the director, I think we've already mentioned him previously, so this, is, this won't break the narrative flow, the director of *MSIglu*, Igloo uh, Takashi Imanishi, as it turns out, was actually running the digital production department within DID at that point in time so I think the fact he ended up directing MS Igloo wasn't necessarily just oh hey, you're a big nerd, uh, you did Gundam E three, come and do this it was because it was a DID production and he was DID's guy so the fact he's also a humongous military otaku and a, a well-regarded Gundam director was just icing on the cake. Like, okay, you're perfect. You're also perfect, and additionally, you're perfect. So go do this thing.
0: Yeah, as watch, I'm slowly working my way through Gal Um I got halfway through the show early in the summer. I'm now finishing up the back half. But as I was uh, watching, I was working at, it at the same time. Um, like idly um, scanning the credits during the ending theme. And I noticed a DID did the CG work in that show. So I was like the Leonardo DiCaprio meme, him on the couch pointing, like, yes, DID. They did all the um, computer interfaces and um, whenever else CGI, CG happens to show up in the show. Things melting. Whenever any mech melts, classic moment uh, to incorporate CGI into your 90s mecha show. While DID had the freedom to experiment with new technology, for the better part of a decade, it functioned more as a support studio, helping create and integrate CG assets into traditionally cell-animated shows. Recently, PMC and I encountered their work in Turn A Gundam many times. Um, shout out to those bees that wrecked Keith. But if you have a favorite sunrise show of the late 90s or early 2000s, ms Team, Cowboy Bebop, Planetus, chances are they pitched in. Given the studio's longevity, it's no surprise that had a committed team full of institutional knowledge. At the time, the senior-most member was undoubtedly Koichi Inoue, whom we talked about on our G-Savior episode. He produced the film. Mark, I know we did an extensive overview of Inoue's resume on that episode, but for the unaware, care to review the more salient points of his career?
2: You know, I think for me this is largely a story about the Sunrise planning office. So this is kind of the secret arm within Sunrise that historically had been responsible for developing and pitching new show ideas. So they would... They would come up with concepts, do the initial solicitation of sponsors, start working on things like toy designs to make sure that there was a commercial basis for it. Then eventually they would get the production green light and they'd hand it off to one of Sunrise's other internal studios to actually make the show. So a lot of what they did was just coming up with ideas, pitching, development. The original guy running that... um, uh, I'm why am I blanking on his first name? This guy is tremendously important. But um, there was an original guy running it. And then in the 80s, they brought in a new generation of people to help him out who eventually inherited that role. Um, collectively, the Sunrise Planning Office, uh, they're credited in Sunrise Shows as Hajime Yadate. When you see like original concept by... Hajime Yadate, it means the planning office came up with it. Up until Yamara kind of handed it off and moved on upstairs, I think he... I think they promoted him to company president uh, around that point. Um, I should have written all this down, but I was relying on my instinct... on my accumulated knowledge. Um, anyway, up until that point, when you saw Hajime Yadate Credit in a Sunrise show, they'll you know, say co creating Gundam with uh, Yoshioki Tomino. Um, it would basically mean Yamaura. He was such a charismatic commanding president, one of the seven legendary founders of Sunrise, that everybody else was just basically his foot soldiers. At any rate, uh, in the early 80s, they start bringing in some new people to assist him, one of those being uh, Koichi Inoue, who they actually headhunted from Tomi, the toy maker because they needed someone who spoke the language of the toys. A lot of what he was going to be doing would be going out on the road with Yamura and negotiating with uh, Bandai and Popey and Clover and all these other toy companies to get the green light for shows. So the fact that he had a background in toy making and understood that business and the, the complications and issues and marketing and production aspects of it was a tremendous asset. So he kind of becomes groomed as the new Hajime Yadate, as the new head guy at the planning office. And around like 1985 or so, he kind of steps into that role and is largely in charge of the planning office. So for things like, uh, you know, you look at a mid, eight, mid to late 80s sunrise show, uh, your Zeta, Double Zeta, Dragonar, blah, 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 all the stuff they put out in that time, Basically, uh, Inoue is leading the planning office in setting it up, brainstorming it, closing a deal, lining up sponsors, and handing it off to be turned into an actual show. Um, when Sunrise was acquired by Bandai, there was a, everybody reshuffled, everybody switched seats, and Inoue got shifted over to basically do the digital stuff. They created DID and installed him in charge of it. It seems, from interviews, it seems like he was still running the planning office throughout this whole time as well. So, even when you're talking about MS Igloo, uh, Imanishi is like, yeah, I was contacted by Koichi Inoue of the planning office. He was doing that too. He'd been running DID for like a decade. But I guess he just wore a lot of hats as well as SISOPing and so on. Um... So, yeah, at this point in time, he's, he's responsible for the digital stuff that D.I.D. is doing. Uh, he's also still in charge of planning, um, which means a lot of what he's doing is sort of behind the scenes stuff that won't necessarily pop up in credits. He's credited for a lot of random stuff. I think uh, one thing that uh, came up when we were talking about him last time with G-Savior is he's credited as the uh, script supervisor for V Gundam, which is a really random thing to be credited with, considering he actually helped plan the show and line everything up and a million other things besides, but that's how how he was credited in the final show, just because eh, whatever, we'll slip him in here. But he's kind of there, like I, I, I guess I feel I can relate to this a little bit, as Part of the uh, the unseen Gundam infrastructure, I, I feel an affinity to other people who are kind of unseen Gundam infrastructure. So in a way kind of just <laughs> there, like a river running in the background, carrying all the boats that we look at. Um, you can't really untangle anything that happened in Gundam during this time period from like you know in a way benevolent facilitation. So this is one of the occasions when he kind of pops up and has you know, he has a producer credit on Igloo. So he's kind of stepping briefly into the limelight a little more assertively. That kind of indicates that he was maybe even more involved in making this happen than he would otherwise be.
0: Classic corporate promotion. Running the planning office, your boss comes to you and says, all right, yes, we have a new job for you. You're getting promoted. You're like, excellent, yes. Um, Here are all your new responsibilities, but you're also going to do your old responsibilities too. Congratulations.
2: Oh, and by the way, we're shipping you over to America to, like, your work on the Pippin launch, and uh, there's this guy, Sid Mead, we want you to meet. We need to tell him about Gundam. So you're in charge of teaching Sid Mead about Gundam.
0: Yes, really setting Inoue up for success with the Pippin launch. They can't all be winners. You
2: got War for Earth out of it, you know. Yeah, hell,
0: hell yeah. Takashi Imanishi, another Sunrise veteran, was DID's in-house director. He had a long and storied career at the studio. He's come up before on Giant Robot FM. Imanishi had joined Sunrise right after he graduated college in the early 80s. He worked on Armored Trooper of Votoms, 1983, and Panzer World Gallant, 1984. As he moved up the creative ladder, he eventually made a name for himself as someone who is deeply knowledgeable about military matters and CG. So, it should come as no surprise to learn that later in his career, he directed the back half of Mobile Suit Gundam Stardust Memory, episodes 8 through 13, and, relevant to this episode, all three MS Igloo OVAs, which released between the years 2004 and 2009. Now, Mark, you have an interesting note here I wanted to highlight before we'll return to it later.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's kind of double credited, like... Quite a lot of people. he has a uh, different uh, aliases for different purposes. Um, but I think he really only has the one that he habitually uses, which is when he's writing scripts, he's credited as a Tomohide Okuma. Um, That's how you know his- you
0: made it. Like you're a Bruce Wayne figure. Um, you have a nom de guerre for your like nighttime job or your daytime job as it were.
2: Yeah, so he used that for all of his doubleRD3 scripts. And um, he used it for his uh, writing on the MS Igloo, which for the fir- for Hidden One You War he did Episodes 1 and 3. And he did, uh, I think, which Episodes did he do of uh, Apocalypse 0079? I have a note of that here. Um, yeah, he wrote Episodes 2 and 3 of uh, Apocalypse 0079. So, you know, he gets around. They have actually on the official MS Igloo website, where they have all the staff interviews, they have a very silly interview where he's uh, it's an interview with Okuma where he's being kind of cross-examined by uh, by uh, Inoue. And like, oh, who are you? Describe yourself. He's like, well, you know, nobody knows who I am. I'm this shadowy figure who assists director Imanishi."
0: <laughs> and it's like wah, 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 wah. Yeah.
2: So like a lot of these things, it's a really poorly hidden open secret.
0: I'm laughing about it. I'm making fun, but Stephen Hero is my nom de guerre, so if I ever make it big, you'll have the Wikipedia entry for my name, and then it will also have like a section dedicated to Stephen Hero, his alias as a podcaster. So I can certainly relate. While we know many of the corporate and promotional reasons behind Igloo's creation, we know less about the catalyzing creative impulses that guided its development. If I had to hazard a guess, I imagine the folks over at DID having operated as a support studio for almost a decade, were itching to do their own thing. Mark, do you think I'm off base here? This is an inference on my part, um, but I was trying to think creatively, what propelled, these, what propelled this team forward to make Igloo, do you think? Independent of, uh, I guess, museum concerns.
2: There's actually, uh, yesterday, I was looking through the uh, MS Igloo novelization, And there's an afterword by Imanishi where he talks about the origins of the project. This is probably the closest I've found to a straight-up explanation of why. Um, And basically, because they want to do a film for the museum, uh, the people running the museum went to Inume and said, "We want to do, like, a film? Um... know a film or like some kind of film equivalent for the museum and because the approach of the museum was this is historical artifacts there was nothing smacking of anime in the museum it was all kind of done straight-faced realistic they kind of concluded that we can't just do an animated film in the context of this museum that doing it as realistic looking cgi would be more in keeping with the tone of the museum presentation. And that was the impetus for doing it as CG. Um, generally, DID was always kind of looking for opportunities to push a technological envelope, uh, among the other things that they'd done in the run-up to this, sort of things like the Gundam Evolve series, which the first like five episodes of Gundam Evolve had some Im- involvement by uh, Imanishi and DID, uh, I think Imanishi directed a couple of the episodes of Gundam Evolve, including one that actually used uh, motion capture actors to stage a G-Gundam fight scene. Those were kind of basically model promotion videos, uh, hyping the new Master Graves or HGUCs or whatever. But uh, that was a little technology demo thing that DID kind of cut its teeth on in the run-up to Igloo. So they had a standing mandate to look for opportunities to learn new things and try new stuff. So I think in that sense, it was a confluence of they wanted something CG for the museum. Um, DID wanted to try something new. It just seemed like it all kind of meshed together. Uh, Imanishi was like a Gundam and military otaku guy. He was right there at Did. And he'd actually, before they started having this conversation, he says uh, Inoue approached him in uh, the autumn of 2003, but Imanishi actually directed video snippets that were screened in the museum from opening. There were some kind of historical archive videos of like, you know, Zaku machine gun fire testing or the lower half of the Gundam frame hopping around like a cricket that were meant to be historical records that Imanishi had actually directed even before the museum opened. And they even used some of those snippets in Igloo. So I think really it was kind of just a fairly smooth, logical glide path from what they were already doing at museum to we could kind of get the same people to pad this out into a whole OVA series.
0: Makes complete sense. In the absence of official documentation, sans the novelization that Mark just brought up, we can only speculate... It's obvious that Imanishi prefers his sci-fi grounded, and he's certainly comfortable telling stories from the Xeon perspective. Several members of the team, Imanishi included, have cited Philip Kaufman's 1983 film The Right Stuff as a source of inspiration, but don't really elaborate further, other than talking about aesthetic concerns. Whatever the case may be, the subject matter undoubtedly caters to hardcore fans, plus it's in the team's wheelhouse, So it may be that simple. While we can surmise about Igloo's creative origins, there's no discounting the premium it puts on the mechs. That is well documented. It took a village of designers, veteran and novice alike, to create the disproportionately high number of mechanical designs for a three-episode OVA. Given that this is a DID production, there are going to be a lot of familiar facers for Giant Robot FM listeners. See our Origin and G-Savior coverage such as Kimitoshi Yamane, best known to Western fans for designing the spaceships in Cowboy Bebop and the guy Melefs in Escaflowne. As Yamane put it, he's had a long relationship with both Mr. Imanishi and DID Studio, so the fact that he was on the team isn't a surprise. When pre-production on Igloo began, Yamane was busy with other projects, so much so that he wasn't exactly keen to take on more work. However, once he received the pitch, he was intrigued. He didn't say this verbatim, but based on interviews, I get the sense that the prospect of coming up with all these off-the-wall and anacharistic designs really tickled him. With Igloo, Yamane could let his mechanical sensibilities run wild. I imagine this was something like a boyhood dream come true for Yamane. You know all those weird tanks and robots you drew in your composition books in elementary school? Well now you can bring them to life the opportunity was too good to pass up. so mark you have this pretty you have this down to a science you have this well documented which designs was yamane responsible for and this will be more for the listeners than us because we only know of so many designs between pmc and i Hmm.
2: probably the uh most noteworthy one from Hidden One You Wore is uh, the giant death ray in the first episode, the Jormungand. Um, this is basically a sort of battleship size plasma cannon that's, uh, that's powered by exploding fusion reactors. So kind of the concept is it uses, like, Zaku reactors as bullets and kind of fires this accelerated plasma bolt towards the uh, enemy fleet. Um that's one of many, many, many World War II nerd-in jokes. Uh, it's actually their, the show's science-setting advisor, Tadashi Nagase, came up with the idea when they told him, oh, we want some kind of like big anti-ship weapon. He's like, well, how about doing a space version of the uh, German millipede gun from World War II? Which was a kind of humongous like, cannon that was powered by kind of supplemental um, gunpowder injections into the length of the barrel. So it would kind of go, poof, 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 as the shot goes down. It's one of these insane, like, you know, basically uh, World War II German uh, Wunderwaffe or wonder weapons. Almost everything in Igloo is riffing on one of these, like, weird German, like, fantasy weapons. So this one is pretty much a direct swipe. When you look at blueprints of the millipede gun, it is it is just the Jormungand. So it's a space version of that. Um, so I think this is where, like most of the designers on the show, um, and, you know, like Imanishi, um, Yamane is a big military history nerd, so he's kind of in his element there. It's like, oh, cool, I get do something like goofy and anachronistic and historical that's kind of pandering to military buffs, and it's like, there's a lot of that. A lot of that in Igloo.
3: Um, what
2: else did he do that was noteworthy? He did. Later on in Igloo 2, he kind of did the makeover for the uh, Federation tank, the uh, M61, which continues showing up in everything. It's basically the same tank they use in uh, Origin later on. Um, you know, I think off the top of my head, that's probably the. Oh, and I think he did the uh, Zagok from uh, the first episode of Apocalypse 0079. So those are probably his two most charismatic contributions to uh, the original MS Igloo double series. All right, I think those are probably the main ones that come to mind.
0: That space laser sounds like, I'm looking at a picture of it now, it looks like something you draw in your composition book in elementary school. Powered by a bunch of internal explosions within the laser itself.
2: It's... I think this comes up a lot, actually, when people are trying to make sense of what the heck uh, the Gundam GPO-2's atomic bazooka does in 003. It's, <laughs> um, sometimes people go, well, it could be like a... Uh, you know, fusion-powered plasma cannon. It's like, yeah, they had one of those in Igloo. If you want to see how Takashi Imanishi directs a giant, like, fusion-powered plasma cannon, he did that. He did that in Igloo. That's what it looks like. It is cool and impressive and devastating and, you know, and, uh, yeah, that's that's the thing. Go on. (laughs) Sorry.
0: Igloo is a homecoming of sorts for Yomane who got to reunite with his old colleague and collaborator, Shinji Aramaki. In the late 80s, the pair worked at ArtMIC, short for Art and Modern Ideology for Creation, an animation design studio that was around until 1997 when it went bankrupt. We haven't really talked much about Aramaki before on Giant Robot FM, but that's not a value judgment. He's a prolific mechanical designer, best known for his work on Megazone 23 Bubblegum Crisis, and Gasaraki. He was also the driving creative force behind Metal Skin Panic Maddox-01, one of the quintessential 80s mecha OVAs. Now, Mark, what was Aramaki responsible for on Igloo?
3: The
2: main thing that he did on Igloo was the uh, mothership of the 603rd technical evaluation team, uh, the uh, Jotunheim, which is... It's kind of a continuing character, they keep tacking things onto it and upgrading it and customising it as the series goes on. So even though that was his main the main thing he did on the show, it's kind of like an ongoing ongoing gig. Um the there's some fun tidbits about the design of the Jotunheim as well, Are they, in the uh interview they did with Aramaki for the MS Igloo website. Apparently the orders he was given from Imanishi were to do something modeled on the uh, Seikan Rail Ferry, which was basically a transport ship that would carry entire passenger locomotives across, you know, across like, your bodies of water. So you open up one end, you drive the train in, you park it on the ferry, it sails, it opens up, it comes out the other end and it just keeps going. Mm-hmm. That's why the uh, Jotunheim has these, all these rails on its deck, so it was. It's basically meant to be a ferry ship that has been requisitioned and turned into a, a combat vessel, and uh, it's it's a very cool and charming looking ship. I think it's got this kind of dorky little bridge that sticks out the front, which was meant to make it look like less like it wasn't designed to be an aggressive ship it's meant to look like a peacetime vessel that's been kind of pressed into service and uh yeah it's basically that's aramaki's main main contribution to igloo is just the the mothership
0: You've not, you have now got me down a rabbit hole because i'm looking up pictures of this train ferry the saikon ferry and i every month i'm like this close to starting a train um because i'm a train enthusiast and The interface and complexity of that game has kept me away, but I might start soon. Uh, My daughter's really into model trains. Really, you know, Thomas the Tank Engine wooden train toys, Um, but I also enjoy (laughs) trains for those very same reasons. Now, before we leave the subject of Aramaki, I want to touch on a few things, because he has a lot of connections with Western production companies. He was a creative advisor on Halo Legends, an anthology of animated shorts that came out in 2010. He was also a director on Ghost in the Shell, SAC 2045, or SAC 2045, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, I've never spoken that out loud before, which was financed by and premiered on Netflix. Aramaki also directed Aliens vs. Predator Annihilation, a 10-episode show for Fox, Unfortunately, even though annihilation was completed seven years ago, it hasn't been released to the public, and may never be. Now, PMC, you're a longtime Halo and Ghost in the Shell fan. Did you ever check out Legends or Twenty
1: Forty Five? So, I actually I was unfamiliar with Legends, but but that tracks because I think I checked out on Halo probably probably around 2010 i think playing halo 4 caused me to permanently check out of being a halo fan so that would have been around that time uh as for ghost in the shell i did watch the first season of sac 2045 and i I know there was a lot of negative uh commentary on that on that production at the time uh in particular making fun of well and again i think it was one of those situations like the final fantasy 10 laughing scene where people failed to appreciate the context of something. Cause everyone kept sharing the footage of this guy dance, like j- jumping around in one combat scene. It turns out the whole point is that he's supposed to be like a lifeless drone. Like that's the whole, he's supposed to look lifeless animated almost, you know? Um, so I don't think it was, it wasn't as bad as I think people made it out to be, but it was not up to the standards of standalone complex by any means. So, um, I would go w- back and watch the second season. I probably should, It has a lot of the original dub actors, you know, Mary McLean, Richard Epcar. So that was like, that was a warm blanket putting that over me. Um, I should go back and watch it, but you know, well, it was fine. It was fine is what I would say. And
0: 2045 is another example of a, a medium shift because you have, you know, traditionally ghost in the shell is traditionally animated. I mean, of course there, there is CGI in the films and there's CGI, in the orig- uh, the first TV show. But this is completely CGI. Similar to Igloo. And I guess. Same with aliens versus predator annihilation. Though I guess no one really knows what that looks like. Other than Aramaki and the team who made it. And the Fox executives. I guess the Disney executives now. Who are keeping that under lock and key. It also could be one of those things where they don't even know what they have. But that's not all yutaka Izubuchi, a prolific designer and illustrator whom i know best as the mechanical designer on a bunch of pat labor stuff the costume designer on gundam wing and the creator of razafon also helped out izabuchi also worked on panzer world Galleon, designing some of those dope ass medieval mechs which is perhaps where he fir- first met imanishi On Igloo, Izabuchi designed the Zuda, the Mark, how do I pronounce this? Because I haven't watched the show yet. Zimid? Zimad?
2: Um, I think it's actually written in kind of Z- Zimat, but um, maybe. But uh, I just call it Zimad.
0: Zimad? All right. That sounds appropriately monolith- monolithically corporate
3: got to be written in, uh,
2: yeah, it's, uh, it's Zimat.
0: Zimat? Kana. Okay.
2: Zimat. Yeah, I guess they're going for probably a Germanic kind of pronunciation. Yeah. Probably. But Zimat, it's written Zimat. Call it Zimat. Zimat, Zimat.
0: The, the, the dilemma when you're a Gundam podcaster. How the fuck do you pronounce this? The eternal question.
2: Jim. Everything's pronounced Jim.
0: <laughs> the... Zuda, the Zimed-developed mobile suit prototypes that appears in Episode 3. Mark, for the listeners at home, is holding up a figurine of the Zuda. Yeah,
2: so this is a very nice HGUC uh, Zuda that they belatedly did. This was, you know, it, it, it's, it's pretty sweet. They did this sometime after the episode came out. And, uh, so this was not, it was not originally designed to be a, uh, to be a Gunpla, but a Gunpla it did become. Here we go. Say hi to the folks at home.
0: It it looks very cool. I can't wait to talk about it uh, more in depth when we actually get to that episode. But people fucking love the Zuda, And if there's an IT mobile suit featured in Igloo, it's this one. Izabuchi mentions that it's always difficult in an effort to adhere to canon to introduce new mobile suits into the one-year war. Quote, If we release a new mass-produced mobile suit, at that point it becomes a lie. End quote. You risk damaging continuity. But the conceit of Igloo provided a nice workaround. The Zuda was never mass-produced, nor was it deployed on the front lines. It was a prototype. Plus, technically, Igloo's a prequel, kind of. It takes place nine months before First Gundam. Hence, why we didn't see it until the release of this OVA. So while I was doing some research, I stumbled upon some interesting interviews in 2004, um, Isabuchi was interviewed, and the interviewer singled him out as having the distinction of being the only mechanical designer, in addition to Kunio Okawara, and I guess Tomino—the uh, interviewer didn't mention Tomino, but Tomino did some mechanical designs on First Gundam—to have designed original One Year War suits, which got me thinking. Igloo came out in 2004, up until that point, the only animated Gundam shows that took place during 0079 were War in the Pocket and 08th MS Team. Izabuchi worked on War in the Pocket. He designed the Alex and Zaku 2 Kai, so that checks out. However, he did not work on 08th MS Team, which does feature new mobile suits and new Gundams. Uh, taking what the interviewer said at face value, he must not be counting models like the EZ-8 designed by Yamane on the grounds that it's derivative of the RX-782 and thus not wholly original. Or maybe the interviewer just didn't think about it as much as I'm thinking about it now. Uh, but not to get too much in the weeds here, but what's your take on this, Mark? I, th- I
2: think that's legit. I, I think the, probably the other example that the, that, uh, the interviewer was thinking of, of uh, Izubuchi designing an actual, completely original one-year-old mobile suit, would actually be the Kempfer from 0080. So the Alex is a Gundam. The Zaku Kai is a Zaku. The EZ-8 is a Gundam. The Goof Custom is a Goof. Izabuchi had created the Kemper, which is not anything else. It is a completely original, from scratch, non-variant mobile suit. And then the Zuda, which is completely original, from scratch. Um, Not a variant of anything else. So I think we're just applying a fairly kind of rigorous designer standard as to what constitutes novelty. A lot of the time when you see the designers discussing these things, you know, something that might to us look new and exotic, they're like, no, same old, same old. Um, Shoji Kawamori, working on 0083, when he's talking about the uh, Gundam GPO one he's like, this is just how I always thought the Gundam should be. To him, he's just drawing the Gundam. This is Kawamori's Gundam. He's, he's not thinking of it as being a new mobile suit. Um, and I think that is going to apply to a lot of these designers. When you've got something as charismatic and memorable as the Zaku or the Gelgoog in front of you, you do your own riff on it, but you're still just reacting to another designer's creation. Uh, the Kempfer and the Zuda were completed from whole cloth from the ground up. So I, I think that's a legit point, and I'm with Zabuchi on this one.
0: The Camper is such a fucking iconic design. I was about to say, if there is an afterlife, I would like to, it to be filled with camphors, but I guess that wouldn't be a heavenly environment. But it's such a sick ass design. When I when I close my eyes and dreams a, a dream of my favorite mechs, the Camper is number one or up there. It's a, same with a lot of the Stardust Memory uh, mobile suits and Gundams. Those designs. I mean, the show is another matter entirely, but those designs completely iconic. Love, love, the chunky Gundam.
2: You, you wouldn't want to be cradled in, in the in the comfortable, thick arms of the of the rocked gently to sleep with its like steel blade arms. In
1: the, Zero, you know, I, oh, that. Yeah, there's a Remember the
0: the mobile armor from First Gundam? Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, this, The first thing I thought of was in Mega Man Legends. In the code, they included a Zekrello like randomly with a little message. Um, that's one of those factoids I'll never forget. It's worth pointing out that Izabuchi was also a production supervisor on Igloo, so he wore many hats. He made a lot of big picture decisions about the visuals to maintain consistency. For example, it was his idea to feature spaceships in the first episode, tanks in the second, and mobile suits in the third. He also helped structure the OVA from a conceptual level, so he is one of the big creatives on Igloo. Of course what UC Gundam OVA would be complete without the contributions of Hajime Kotoki, rockstar mechanical designer who rounds out this murderer's row of veteran talent? Unlike Imani, Armaki, and Izabuchi, Kotoki hasn't really gone on record about his contributions to Igloo, but he did help out, and that's worth mentioning. Mark, do you know what Kotoki did on Igloo? Um, weirdly, quite a lot. He did all the spaceship. Des-
2: uh, makeovers so the Salamis and Magellan and uh, the Musai and uh, Guazin that we see all in the first episode those are all Katoki makeovers and those also kind of stuck to a certain extent I think um, when the Musai uh, shows up and the Chive show up in uh, Gun Named Unicorn they're just variations on the MS Igloo designs that uh, Kotoki did. Those are also, I think, the first designs from Igloo that were productized because uh, they did like model kits of the Musai, Magellan, Salamis. Um, all, those, all those makeover ships that uh, Kotoki did were released pretty quickly after Igloo came out. And uh, then he did the uh, Hildolf in uh, the second episode, the giant mobile tank. Uh, is Katoki. And uh, what he did, I think, maybe less in Apocalypse 0079, I think his main contribution there was actually just the uh, updated core booster you get in uh, the first episode of uh, Apocalypse 0079. So mostly his stuff is uh, front-loaded in Igloo. There's a ton of Katoki in the fleet battle in the first episode, And then the uh, giant, like, monster mobile tank in the second one.
0: Always love a good Kotoki design. He's one of the mechanical designers I could see a design and go, ah, yes, Hajime Kotoki. Mark, is that the sort of stuff you tell your wife now that you don't have Twitter as an outlet? You just wake up in the middle of the night and go, Hajime Kotoki and rattle off some design specs of your favorite mechs? She has
2: to listen to a lot of babble. I mean, a lot of the time it's just me trying to figure out what size, ideally, insects would be so we could see them more clearly. <laughs> I'm, I'm lobbying for, like, a 50 times scale-up, so bumblebees would be, like, the size of raccoons. And she thinks that's inconveniently big, and they should be the size of uh, of guinea pigs, so, like, a 20 times scale-up. So that kind of comes up a little more often, but... Uh, you know, it's good to have somebody who will put up with these kinds of conversations.
0: <laughs> Are valid questions?
2: Somebody's got to take charge of it. Otherwise, it's going to be left to, like, you know, somebody phoning it in and go, eh, whatever. Uh, sure, a hundred times, whatever. That's a nice round number. Sounds good. Next thing you know, you have, like, answer size of rhinos cruising down the street and everything's gone to hell.
0: That's called Earth Defense Force.
2: This has to be considered very, very carefully by responsible adults, and the responsibility has fallen to
0: me and Julie. And I'm, I'm glad the two of you are tackling it. I could sleep easy at night knowing that. Where were we? <laughs> but it wasn't just industry veterans who worked on Igloo. Kenji Fujioka, who at the time was a young illustrator, lent his talents. Previously, he worked on several... MetaRot, better known in the U.S. as MetaBots, manga, and games. To get a feel for his style, look up Grand Beetle and Sonic Stag, two MetaRots he designed for MetaRot Navi. Fujioka was a Gundam fan since he was a kid, so the opportunities afforded him by Igloo must have been fulfilling. In fact, he was such a fan that he could rattle off the names of his favorite mechanical designers which perhaps explains how he got the job. Sometime in the early aughts, he submitted a design for the mecha category of the Dengeki Game Illustration Awards because Hajime Katoki was a judge. And he won. This award set a lot of things in motion for Fujioka. Soon afterwards, he was chosen to be the mechanical designer on Advance of Zeta, The Flag of Titans, a photo novel that ran in Dengeki hobby from 2002 to 2008. Advance of Z is an original story that starts in UC 0084, shock, not the one year war, and tells the story of the Black Otter Squad, one of the original Titan units. Mark, you know a few things about Advance of Z, right?
3: Yeah,
2: I, I know a little bit about it, sure. I, I'm, I'm waving my hazel, uh, my, uh if actually <clears throat> I'm, what I'm showing you now, folks at home, on this on this chat screen that you can't see, uh, this is my only painted gunpla. Oh. Uh, they did a uh, a model kit of the Hazel Custom from Advance of Zeta, but not of the original Hazel, which I kind of put together by kit bashing different versions of the Hazel with like some uh, Alex style armor parts that were a bonus add in uh, for Dengeki Hobby. And uh, then I filled in the details by painting it because I realized that the um, custom paint set that Bandai released for the HGUC Zagok-E had exactly the same colors that were used in the plastics of the Hazel. So I picked out that one paint set and it had all of the kind of grays and yellows I needed to complete a perfect replica of the original Gundam TR-1 Hazel from uh, Advanced Zeta so you would be so impressed if you could see this this is this is the this is the only gunplot i've put any effort into
0: oh it looks-, looks good i also needed an idea for mecha day tomorrow so i'm gr- glad you pointed this out mark <laughs> it's slotted and all ready to go
2: great just you know I'm, I'm glad i could help
0: oh you had a question in there did do you not Yes. Um, Can you clarify what a photo novel is? Um, Because I think this is the first time this has come up on Giant Robot FM.
2: So, you know, to some extent, it is just what it sounds like. It's a novel with photos. But I think it's something that was particularly popular in hobby magazines. Because what you have is you have a serial prose story. And then you have like scratch-built models and dioramas, and you photograph them to serve as illustrations for the story. Probably the most famous Gundam example of that would be a Gundam Sentinel, was originally published in Model Graphics in that format. Where you have a serial novel by a real writer, and then you have the entire magazine stuff of scratch builders and photographers and you know diorama builders doing like illustrations of all these mobile suits fighting. So you get to do all this kind of cool documentary style camera work and kind of, oh, here's like gun camera footage or this is a vast panoramic battle scene and the imagery actually ends up looking a lot like the stuff from MS Igloo. Um, A lot of the same kind of presentation techniques that you see in Igloo uh, really harken back, I think, to the hobby magazine diorama builders and the people who did shots for these sorts of photo novels. Um, so there are other examples. There's actually a surprising number of these for Gundam. I think in Hobby Japan, way back in the 80s they had like Dragoon 13 and Tyrant sort of Neophalia and, uh, and then obviously Advance of Zeta in the 2000s and you know if they'd actually done the uh, msX series which was originally being planned in like nineteen eighty four as a follow-up to msV um that was going to be a serial in the comic bomb bombs I think that was going to be a photo novel as well and then they canceled it because they're like yeah we're gonna do a new TV series instead so you could construct an entirely different narrative for this episode in which we seamlessly lead from like photo the photo novels of the 80s you know up into ms glue, and just ignore the whole cg storyline entirely
0: interesting are are photo novels still a thing in japan in hobbyist magazines i'm sure hobbyist magazines still exist in japan uh,
2: i i'm not really aware of any examples i mean i don't think there are any ongoing gundam ones and there actually aren't that many physical hobby magazines still. Uh, hobby Japan is still going. Dengeki Hobby ceased physical publication a decade ago, I think.
3: So I think there's just eh,
2: there's not really a venue for it. I think now nowadays people just make manga. It's a lost art. You should restore it. Cultivate it like bonsai. Bring back the photo novel.
0: It's like the last, like the five remaining, like, katana builders, constructors left in Japan. You know, those swords, uh, swords, expert swords makers, and like three of them, and they're all like 95 years old.
3: You know,
2: this is. I originally started down this line just as a gag, but um, now I think about it, who was the um, CG supervisor on Igloo? Uh, yeah, Masayoshi Obata. Uh, he actually says that a lot of his ability to kind of put CG images on screen comes from his experience building model kits, making dioramas, shooting them to look realistic with uh, his with his camera. That physical experience of doing the weathering and the kind of your know, thing about the lenses and the viewing angles and the atmospherics carried over directly into his ability to supervise the production of CG images. So. We're kind of seeing here a generation of people who have a deep experience with hands on stuff, with model making, dioramas, conventional photography, and to the extent that they're creating like compelling images in CG, it's because they're translating their real world, old school analog knowledge. So, for people at home who want to get into this field, that might be an avenue to explore. There probably aren't a lot of people who are still going to like, you know, build like model railroad dioramas and fake trees and try and shoot it so it looks real with a Pentax. It could be you. You could keep
0: the tradition alive. That stuff really tickles me. I don't have the skill set for it or the time, but when we were doing our research for our Front Mission Simulator episode, uh, we looked at a lot of Ko Yokiyama's uh, dioramas that he made for that game, and those designs are so sick. And there's an art book collecting all those images, and they're gorgeous. Actually, images isn't the right term. They're photos, and those photos are really gorgeous. No doubt, Dengeki Hobby's editorial board and MediaWorks, the magazine's publisher, were happy with Fujioka's work. He carried over as mechanical designer on the sequel, a light novel called The Traitor to Destiny, which ran from 2010 to 2011. But before that, presumably from the reputation he garnered on Advance of Z, he was enlisted to work on MS Igloo. Mark, which designs was Fujioka responsible for on Igloo?
2: He was kind of the junior guy initially. Um, so they had him doing a lot of, like, fill-in stuff. He did the the uh, the interior, the cockpit of the Komusai in the, the second episode, when they're kind of coming in to land. That was one of those cases where all the senior designers and directors were recommending movies for him to watch. Oh, you should check out the right stuff. What's the re-entry sequence in Space Cowboys? Look at this NASA archival footage of people flipping switches in the space shuttle. So everyone was kind of like rushing in with armloads of stuff for the new kid. You know, Look at this real world reference for designing the the cockpit. So he'd never done a cockpit before. He's like, whoa, this is a whole new world. This is the interface between the humans and the machines. I'd never thought about it before. Uh, he did the, uh, the little observation ship in the uh, first episode. Uh, it's this one which... Uh, Eventually, a couple of the characters get into and they're going to fly out to the front lines of the fleet battle and try and do some direct artillery spotting. And uh, he was tickled that when you first see mobile suits in MSA glue, it's actually uh, a bunch of Zakus fly by during the battle and Shar Zaku pulls up in front of the observation ship and kind of like gives him basically a go home. The robots have this. You know, your, your time has passed. So it's like wow, the little observation ship I designed met char <laughs> Which was, you know... For, for, like, the little... For the little designer, this is a huge honor. Um, he did uh, the, this cool little uh, ship called the Hotel, Horizontal Takeoff and Landing. It's like a little launch capsule can fly into orbit. Shows up in episode three. And then in... Uh, Apocalypse 0079, he designs this cool, like, mass-produced mobile pod thing called the Ogo, which uh, when you see it, it's like, if you're familiar with uh, Fujioka's work, it's very Fujioka, because it's cute. It looks like a metabot. It's like a little cartoon, like, doop-doop-doop-doop-doop, little thing with a goonie face.
0: People love that thing. It was a patron request for Mecha Day, and it popped off. A lot of people were like, oh, the Oga, and they are very excited to retweet it.
2: You know, they did a kit of that, too. Eventually, belatedly, when they did start productizing things, there was this whole. There was this kind of weird thing with Igloo because it was designed for hardcore fans. That means you're not going to have a very broad audience for doing products. So at first, the products they were doing were in the uh, EX model series, which were like high priced, you know, no monocolor, like kits aimed at. Older, more experienced, more patient fans with deep pockets, and you know, who really want to go to town painting it. So, kind of the luxury, like semi-garage kit line. They did things like uh, the ships, and they did the uh, Hildolfer and the uh, Ogo in that series. And then, when they did the uh, about a year after Igloo came out, the first series, Hidden One Year War. They belatedly released it on video. It's like, oh, okay, we can let this leak out in the general public a little more. And at that point, they're like, okay, the audience is now broad enough that we can actually do, like, a mass market kit. This is how we get the HGUC Zuda, which I'm holding up here. So cool. So that was something which they didn't really have the... They didn't think the audience was there at that point until they released it to the general public. But yeah, so the algo is kind. That of, makes sense. Yeah, so the algo is kind of like a cult favorite. It is. It is super cute. It's it's this derpy dorky little thing. Oh.
0: Obviously, as Mark just specified, Fujioka was the novice in this group of grizzled vets. In an interview, Fujioka compares himself to Corporal Upham, a character played by Jeremy Davis in Saving Private Ryan. "Quote: In terms of position, I'm the same as him." And I feel like I'm trying my best to keep up with the veteran fighters, end quote. And his responsibilities reflect this. He didn't design the Jotunheim or the Jormungand, two of the higher profile pieces of Xeon tech that take up more space and screen time. Like Mark said, he was in charge of designing more incidental tech, such as the observation plane that shows up in episode one. But this didn't bother Fujioka, who was just happy to be there. Really dates the interview too, with a Saving Private Ryan reference. I've seen the film a few times, but I had to look up both the actor and the character. And unlike Mark, I'm not I'm not a Japanese speaker, and I cannot write Japanese or read Japanese, so I had to. I was using Google Translate, and it it completely mangled the name. So I had to do like a lot of cross referencing to find out which Saving Private Ryan character he was referencing. So when I, I searched the name, it was like this character does not exist. Fortunately, he specified corporal, and that's how I discovered um, who he was referring to. Like with Fujioka, Studio D.I.D. was open to bringing on new talent. Case in point, Megumi Ohashi, who was then in her mid-twenties, she was born in 1975, she was chosen to compose Igloo's soundtrack. There's not too much information on Ohashi on English-language corners of the internet, but she was fairly prolific in the aughts. Notably, she composed the music for both Blue Dragon TV shows the original, and Trial of the Seven Shadows, which total over 100 episodes, I don't know how closely she worked with Nobuo Uematsu, who composed the music for the 360 game, I get the sense, not very, or how involved Uematsu even was on the show, again, probably not very, but it's not easy to follow up and iterate on the work of such a reputable composer, and by all accounts, she succeeded. However, Ohashi didn't get her start in anime, but rather, Super Sentai shows. In the early 2000s, she got her first professional credit on Toei's Bakuru Sentai Aboranger series, working alongside more senior composers. She was a member of Kentaro Haneda's Healthy Wings, a quartet responsible for composing and arranging Aboranger's music no doubt this was a foundational experience for Ohashi, who was still coming up in her career. Not long after Avaranger ended, the final episode aired on February 8th, 2004, Ohashi, who was beginning to make a name for herself in the industry, was hired by Sunrise to work on Igloo. Initially, she was quite nervous. It was the first time I was in charge of a single work by myself, she recalls, and it was a Gundam-related work. So I felt a lot of pressure. But she was not unfamiliar with the material. Gundam wasn't foreign to her. Even though she was a young even though she was young when it aired, not yet grade school age, she watched Gundam growing up. Quote, although I didn't really understand detailed parts about weapons, the human drama depicted was very interesting. End quote and she wanted Igloo's music to hit just as hard as Takeo Watanabe and Yushi Matsuyama's original soundtrack. Above all else, Ohashi wanted Igloo to feel cinematic, like a live-action film. Hence the decision to go with a brass band sound to convey the volume and loudness typical of a movie score. Remember, Igloo premiered in a theater, which Ohashi kept in mind. Quote, I'm also conscious of the fact that I'm listening in a large space, like a theater. End quote. Now, PMC, given your history with brass instruments, I'm curious what you'll think about Igloo's music.
1: Yeah, I'm very curious as well. I, I, my memory of Igloo's music, and this is sort of um, a little bit confirmed by just skimming a few things and and you know seeing scenes here and there, is that Igloo's music is, uh, I mean, actually, it's, it's very funny that she has the history of being involved in Blue Dragon because if you asked me how to describe the music, I would have said it sounds like a, a mid-2000s JRPG, which, mm. you know, with all the pros and cons, you know, that that would come with in terms of sound fonts used, uh, stylistic uh, concerns. So, you know, I don't think the music is by any means a blemish, but I don't remember it being distinct. I, I'm very curious, like, uh, Stephen, do you remember the... When you say brass band, was that, was that like from like a,
0: a quote from an interview or? Yes. So some of it might've been lost in translation.
1: Yeah. Well, just cause you know, brass band um, can often mean a very specific musical tradition, mm-hmm. uh, particularly from England where they would, you know, they would, they had brass instruments so that they would get together and play and it, it produces a, a kind of specific sound and to bring in Star Wars. It would be very much like the funeral march. From the finale of Andor. That was a very much a brass band kind of sound. Um, Now, I realize hiring a bunch of musicians and recording them is expensive. So maybe, you know, they didn't go quite for that, which maybe was why I have the memory of it being more like, uh, you know, more like a a mid 2000s video game soundtrack. So I'm definitely curious to see uh, how it hits this
0: time around. I think the music was performed live at one point because the soundtrack credits all the musicians who were performing the tracks. I'm assuming that was used in the OVA. Like why would you why would you commission all these uh, musicians to come together and not have that music play at your in your movie theater experience? But it's good to bring up. While Ahashi enjoyed her time working on Igloo, she returned to score the subsequent OVAs. The experience wasn't without its obstacles and miscommunications. She remembers that Imanishi quote, was very particular about what he wanted, end quote, but had trouble conveying his expectations clearly. For example, during pre-production, Imanishi specified that he wanted the main theme written and performed in a bolero style. The way he worded it, he wanted a Latin flavor. Naturally, Ohashi's mind ran wild with the possibilities of injecting some Latin flavor into the rest of the soundtrack. After all, bolero is a style of music that originated in Cuba. However, after talking with Imanishi later, she realized that he wasn't referring to the melody, but rather the Latin spirit. Yes, dear listeners, Imanishi was referring to the Roman Empire. Imanishi really is that guy. He is the embodiment of that Roman Empire meme. He's probably thinking about it more than once a day. How
1: would one even... like? like Stephen if I said you know think of a piece of music that makes you think of the Roman Empire like what do you even think of
0: great question I would have to go I don't remember it who did the gladiator soundtrack it was probably Hans Zimmer but yeah probably that but even soundtrack. then
1: you would like the gladiator soundtrack is really a Hollywood late 90s soundtrack right more than true then oh I feel yeah like this... people's
0: idea idea of the Roman Empire though is also like mixed with the um representations of it through hollywood
1: mm-hmm. anyway, this is really a question for Imanishi, of course i want to know what Imanishi was thinking of when he when when he you know meant like latin as in the empire not as in uh the
0: the you know the the tradition i just think like triumphal loud like a uh, like a victory parade going down the the main streets and avenues in rome It's almost too on the nose that Imanishi, who has the reputation within the fandom as being the Zeon guy, would be super into the Roman Empire. Just saying. But it does track. In total, Ohashi's music was included on two separate releases. The first was exclusive to museum-goers. This limited edition included 19 tracks and retailed for 2,520 yen. Victor Entertainment followed this up with a more complete release, available to the public, which came out on April 27, 2005. This release collects 31 tracks, which includes The Origins of Spacetime, Igloo's theme song written and performed by Naho Tanaka, who's also done a whole bunch of macro stuff. Mark, did you pick up a copy, of the exclusive limited edition museum release of the soundtrack? Do you even remember it being sold when you went? I guess no, you went bef- you-, you went before, right? Yep.
2: I-, I missed my uh MS Igloo swag window. There was a halcyon moment. There was an interval of like I guess two years between when Igloo came out and the museum closed, when you would have been that would have been your prime target to gather all the loot.
0: We'll talk about merchandise a little later. There's one piece of official merch which I have to double check the prices online, but I'm a little interested in picking up. Once the conceptual groundwork had been set, it was time to ramp up development. While the team had a loose idea of scope, they, of course, needed an honest-to-goodness story with characters and dialogue. Imanishi, while better known as a director and technical visionary, has experience as a writer. He wrote an episode of City Hunter and co-wrote Capricorn, or excuse me, Capricorn, a forgotten 1991 OVA that he directed. On Igloo, he once again took pen to paper, scripting episodes one and three. Like so many writers before him, he did this work under a nom de plume, as Mark pointed out earlier. He chose Tomohide Okuma as his pen name. However, Okuma wasn't able to write every episode. He needed help. Enter Hiroshi Onogi. As Onogi remembers it, he was invited to join the project by Izabuchi. The two were having drinks one night when Izabuchi brought up MS Igloo. Onogi, whom I get the sense is a bit of a military nerd, according to him, he's always been a fan of the military and tanks, he was interested and he wanted to hear more. The fact that Izabuchi invited Onogi onto the project isn't surprising. The two have a history. Onogi wrote five episodes of Rosafon, plus the screenplay for the film. And if you know anything about Razaphon, you know that it was Izabuchi's baby. He was the driving creative force behind it. So clearly, the two had a close working relationship. But outside of Razaphon, Onogi has had a prolific career, His resume is extensive. I get the sense that he's an in demand, work for hire writer, so much so that it would be too time consuming to go over everything he's done. But some of his standout credits include Zeta Gundam, Heavy Metal Elgime, Macross Zero, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, and Akito the Exile, the Code Gias OVA. As his resume indicates, he has a close working relationship with Sunrise. In fact, he was working on Gundam Seed right before Igloo went into production. Onogi highlights Igloo's second episode as one he especially enjoyed writing. When I heard from director Imanishi, Onogi colorfully remarks, quote, I was really motivated to work on the project because I heard the main theme was a stupid weapon created by Zeon. End quote. In addition, Anogi worked closely with the mechanical designers, Kotoki in particular, during the scripting phase, making sure the story authentically reflected the fidelity of the technology that the illustrators worked so hard to establish. Mark, did you have you ever encountered Onogi before researching Gundam, or is this name new to you?
2: No, I think I I, I think it didn't come up in my in my tiny universe uh, until look, we were doing the research for this. I'm like, oh, okay. Here's this Anogi guy. What else has he done? You, you, you do your due diligence. Like, oh, he wrote Green Divers. So, go figure. But oh, he wrote Green of-
0: Divers? I didn't know Green Divers was a thing until it's... I think it's been uploaded or stitched together by fans and you could watch it now on YouTube or something. But before, it was kind of like um, this very uh, illusory object in the Gundam fandom. Phantom media.
2: You know, there was this whole run of like event things. You know, you had your, uh, your, how was it, uh, that whole Abaraku ride thing, I and mean, then the ride at the Fujikyu Highland. They had a whole bunch of like event space things where, you know, you go, you, you know, go on like a kind of theme park ride with the original story content. It was kind of a point in time when they were doing all sorts of random weird stuff, and so. Green divers was like, let's do a goddamn planetarium show, why not? Yay. We'll get Mikimoto to do the characters, we'll get Kazumi Fujita to like do a guest ship design. They'll have like Fiji and like, you cell animated character cut ins and blah blah. And then it goes away because there aren't that many planetariums to screen it, and it's not like you can just put it on home video very easily. Yeah, Onogi himself, I you know, I I think I hadn't Uh, Today is the most time I've spent discussing uh, his career in my entire life.
0: (laughs) On that, we can relate.
2: Never too late.
0: Speaking of authenticity, Imanishi brought on Tadashi Nagase as science fiction consultant to ensure consistency and verisimilitude in world building. According to his Annie DB biography, Nagase, quote, is a Japanese critic, journalist and author of books on the history of science technology and science fiction he is a lecturer at several universities and a member of science fiction and fantasy writers of japan a japanese association of sci-fi and fantasy writers end quote mark can you tell us a bit about nagasi's role on igloo kind of the
2: same thing he was doing on um on Zeta, I think the first time he'd done this kind of consultant role was on Zeta Gundam, where he doesn't attempt to tell the creators what they should put in the show. Like they tell him, I wanna do this, is there like a plausible way to justify it or some aspect of like real world science and technology that we can throw in here that would kind of like help sell the illusion? So in his view he's kind of he's basically there to make things seem plausible. Um, so in the case of uh, Igloo, it's like he came up with the idea for the gang cannon. But it's like, Imanishi wanted a big gun. And so is like, well, you could do this, and this would be kind of cute and anachronistic, and also it would throw in some, like, real-world sciency aspects to it. And then they go, oh, that sounds good. Now re- re- we'll have uh, Kimitoshi Imane draw that thing. And then with the uh, Hildolf, the uh giant super monster mobile transforming tank from the second episode he did a lot of research into like tank modern tank technology and auto loading mechanisms and he says oh i went through all these websites and half of them were in german so i didn't even know what i was reading but i wanted to give katoki a lot of like cool stuff to draw and then the animators like we've got to feature all this stuff in the episode because they went to all the trouble of researching and drawing it and at the same time, Nagase says, you know, if you actually look at the way this, we want to show the mobility of modern tanks, that they're not these lumbering things, they can really zoom around, but when you actually work it out in scale, given how big the mobile suits are, and how big the hill golfer is, it's like 100 feet long, it's actually zooming around at 300, but basically 300 kilometers an hour, 200 miles per hour. It's like 100 foot tank is zooming around the desert at 200 miles per hour, it's like, that's obviously ridiculous. So if we if we put that down in print, people would blow a gasket. But we, if you do it on screen and just don't tell anyone, you can kind of get away with it. So he's not there to play like reality cop. He's there to like sprinkle some reality on top of the on top of the lie to make it go down sweeter.
0: From an outsider's perspective, that seems like a really charming job to have, because you just have to justify the weird-ass creative whims of your boss. Your boss wants to do something wacky. You just have to make that happen conceptually.
2: I think a lot of this kind of work is about enabling. Um, I think uh, Izabuchi, when he talks about his role as supervisor on MS Igloo, he's like, this isn't how I would have done it, but I was there to bring Imanishi's vision across. So if I were doing MS Igloo, it would be a different Igloo. This is Takahashi's igloo, and I'm just basically there to make sure he gets what he wants, to kind of work with the design staff and kind of make sure that the igloo that gets on screen is the igloo that exists inside uh, Imanishi's head. So I think you know it's, it's nice when you have that kind of consensus about what it is you're trying to do. It doesn't sound like there are a lot of competing visions on this project. What you see is basically it's, it's, it's Imanishi's baby, and I think everybody involved in the project was happy to just kind of go along with that.
0: When you describe it like that, it reminds me of the artists who were around at ILM at the turn of the millennium who were working on the Star Wars prequels, and were like, yeah, this might not be how I would have done the prequels, but it's George's vision, and we just wanted to make sure that vision uh, came to fruition. I do have a follow-up question, though. Um, Are consultants like this typically brought on to Gundam projects? You mentioned Gundam Zeta, which I didn't know about. Um, I didn't know Nagasi worked on Gundam Zeta. Because I had a feeling this might have been a DID thing just because Origin had one of these consultants on, too.
2: It's actually very common. Um, One of the roles of the planning office was bringing in, like, new points of view and new advisors. Uh, Apparently, in the early days of Sunrise, they actually relied a lot on, like, college students. They had this stable of, like, Sci- of science majors who were going through college who would just come by the Sunrise office and like, you know, vet stuff and give them ideas and go, hey, if you use this thing that I just read about in a, in a, in a space technology magazine, it would go well for this story you're talking about. So the kind of terminology they, they use for this is like an outside brain, like literally the loan word brain. And as time went by and the original cadre of college students graduated, a lot of what Inoue and the other planning office people were doing was they were going out and looking for more brains they could bring in to tap for advice. Uh, If we ever get around to talk about Shigeru Horiguchi in this context, this guy who ended up being a Sunrise producer planning office guy, um, he's kind of working in parallel to all the DID stuff because he had his own team doing CGI stuff. He started off with the guy who they recruited from Comique. He was doing like a little fanzine with a bunch of his college buddies, and like, you know, hey, these guys have nerves. How do you like to come by the office and like help us out with some stuff? So yeah, some of that was through the planning office. Nagase was somebody who Tomino had initially contacted because he read some of his articles in a popular science magazine. It was like, you know, this 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 guy's got some got some chops. I want to kind of run some stuff by him for Zeta. So it's very common to have like outside specialists and advisors who you turn to, to you know, to help sell stuff. I think um, Shigeru Morita does this a lot in later Gundam works. You mentioned Gundam Seed. I think that was Morita. Um, he's kind of the go-to guy now to sprinkle some science on the thing. So yeah, very common. The, Generally, be a credit for any like sunrise production that's got a sci-fi aspect to it. They'll have somebody to kind of come in and go, "Yeah, sure, why not? If we call it plasma, that that could work. This could be done with microwaves. Sure, <laughs> why not?
0: Sounds good. I'll sign off on it." I like how you phrased it, sprinkle some science, poetically said. Now, I don't want to shortchange the innovative work D.I.D. was doing in the realm of CGI. But I also don't want to get too lost in the weeds. good talk, or in this case, the intricacies of CGI, don't really work too well in an audio format. For that, you want to consult YouTube. Be that as it may, I do want to highlight a few things. Before animation work could begin, an extensive pre-production period was required in which the team designed the models of the ships and mobile suits. The team initially wanted to create more environments for the characters to interact in, but the limitations of the time, uh, but because of the limitations of the time, they had to reuse a lot of the same locations. Hence, why so many of the scenes take place on the bridge of the Jotunheim. Speaking of limitations, they also had to lower the number of individual characters for the same reason. This is common with CG productions of the time. See Clone Wars, which premiered four years later. Um, see, not only see Clone Wars, which were p- premiered four years later, watch episode one of Clone Wars, where Yoda is leading those troops through that weird ass jungle, and then watch like the very end of Clone Wars. And there's a stark difference between like char- character fidelity and just how many unique characters are on screen at the same time. Same with Pixar movies, for example. Um, whenever you look at early Pixar films and the weird ass homunculi hu- uh, humans that show up and compare it to now, which, you know, a Pixar film like Soul featuring human characters is the norm as opposed to talking cars. Once they got to the animation stage, they used motion capture to create movement. Professional actors, and I think in the interview, Imanishi uh, highlighted they used four actors were brought on for this work. According to Imanishi, there were, quote, about 150 shots per episode and we used up to a day and a half for rehearsals, and a day and a half for the actual shooting. I heard that this is surprisingly fast compared to the video game industry. End quote. I'm trying to think what came out at the time, but you know, whatever Metal Gear Solid game was in development during Igloo's production, I'm sure that game was using more motion capture than Igloo did, is what I think Imanishi getting at. Which would make more sense because video games, by the very nature of what a video game is, have to use more dynamic movement because you are controlling the character. Or you would hope they use more dynamic movement. If there was a Devil May Cry game with the movement of Igloo, I imagine it wouldn't be very good. Mark, I know you did some research on the CGI production. Anything you want to add here?
2: Yeah, um, this was actually kind of fun to dig into. They had a bunch of interviews on the, uh, on the Japanese website for MSA Glue, where they're interviewing different people who worked in the, just, you know, the, the production. And uh, they have an interview, actually, with the uh, motion capture actors uh, who come from an outfit called Super Eccentric Theater. They do like acrobatic like stage performance shows. Um, they were basically there to do the body movements, apparently a lot of the work that they'd been doing in motion in, well, for entertainment stuff before then was playing monsters. So when they came in, they actually thought they'd been hired to do motion capture for the mobile suits. They didn't realize they were going to be playing people. Um, and then gradually they're like, you know, this is going to go a little... This is going to be easier to make this convincing if we actually say the lines and act a little bit rather than just doing the gross body movements. They only had them wired up for to capture the bodies. They weren't supposedly getting their faces and hands in there. They were just doing like the big stuff, and they ended up just kind of doing all the acting and getting into it just because it made it easier to do, make the body language work. Um, and so they actually ended up using they filming their performances and using some of that as reference for things like facial expressions and hand gestures, which actually weren't motion captured. Those had to be done by you know just animators like manipulating the models. But uh there's actually some on the website there's some very cute like behind the scenes photos of them holding props and like yo sticks and they put the captain's seat up on a bunch of cargo pallets because on the bridge of the Jotunheim the captain sits higher than everybody else. So they built like this kind of really crude <laughs> sets. Apparently as time went by in the Igloo series and they're like okay for things like cockpit shops you know we have them sitting on office chairs and pretending they're in a cockpit but you know and pr- imagining they're moving levers but it's going to work a little better if the levers are right there and by igloo 2 they actually fabricated a fake cockpit to do the motion capture just so they could really get into the performance of it so I've, i'd never thought about that as being a thing you think motion capture just like well you know. Andy circus with, like, golf balls glued to him and hopping around like a monkey, and you're like, that... Oh, it's, it's kind of cute. And then things like the mobile suits weren't motion captured. Those were just done kind of like onto conventional animation. They had an animation guy, um, whose name is on my list here, uh, unit director, unit director... Um, yes, uh, Takeshi Matsuda. was basically there to do all the conventional animation stuff, like figuring out the movements of the human character's faces and hands, and just basically um, doing key animation for the mobile suits, like you would in in, uh, cell production. So the mobile suits are kind of more purely animated. The bodies of the human characters are motion captured. The faces and hands are kind of animated with a Well, we'll see what you make of it, how well you think that works. But uh, um, the one other thing that's kind of fun is the creation of the human character models. Is those... The models were... The human characters were 3D scanned from bits of live actors. They apparently had one studio like way out in the sticks that had like a full body... CG scanner that he'd used to make 3D models of real people. Like, well, we want these characters to be explicitly Western, so who in the vicinity of the studio is like a working, like, foreign model who kind of fits the types we're looking for? Izabuchi had drawn rough sketches of his character concepts, and they did a big casting call, had all these, like, foreign models come into the studio, and like, okay, you kind of have the face we're looking for, and, uh, you have the body that Izabuchi's kind of sketched here. And, uh, okay, and you kind, of, you kind of look like this dude, except we're going to need your head. And they just had a, ultimately about 20 models who they did a full body scan. They dress them up in like army surplus uniforms to get an approximation of the costumes. And they just kit bashed them all together to create the characters you see on screen. Which is just, I don't know how I imagined they'd go about it. It was just a big blank for me, like uh, Onogi's entire career. I'm like, and then they, I don't know, you CG model stuff, like CG modelists do. But the particularities of it are just funny. <laughs>
0: yeah, this took a dystopian term, like kit bashing humans.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, Iz- Izabuchi is the name of the doctor, not the monster.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm glad you brought that up. Cause now It just occurred to me, like, yeah, the act of designing the characters or like a distinct character designer never came up. And that makes sense because it was the characters were made in this way. One of the few Giant Robot FM uh, history episodes we'll have where we're not highlighting the, um, the work of an individual or a team of character designers. I'm also glad you brought up the website too. DID is really good about going to their team and getting really good interviews from like 90% of the people who worked on their show, um, which makes it a little bit more work intensive for me, but I appreciate it nonetheless, just because there's so much material to go through. Now, to be fair, these interviews are all on Igloo's website and they're completely in Japanese, but they're completely readable through a Google translation. And I de- definitely recommend you check it out if you're so interested. I mean, we touch upon a lot of the important points here, but there's still a lot of fun anecdotes that we don't have the time to get to the origin website which is officially in english also has like 30 stellar interviews with everyone who worked on that ova the uh, the six episodes of the origin ova and there's a lot of overlap as you'd suspect between the team who worked on origin and the team that worked on igloo now let's talk about some merch The first two Gundam Igloo shorts, otherwise known as episodes one and two, "The Vanishing Serpent of Loom" and "The Howls Stained in the Dusk" or, excuse me, "Howls Stained in Dusk," premiered at the Bondi Museum on July 19, 2004. The third episode followed roughly four months later on November 3rd. Museum goers who purchased a ticket received an obligatory film pamphlet and had the option to purchase a limited edition soft vinyl Zaku exclusive to the museum. Mark, can you talk about film pamphlets in Japan? I suspect a lot of our listeners are unfamiliar with this practice. That's customary there, but not the norm here in the States.
2: Kind of just, in my experience, it's a lot of these are just like little handouts. You'll see sometimes, if I recall from my limited experience theater going in Japan, and you probably have like 100 million listeners who can, like, you know, fill in way more detail than this. Is sometimes you would have the option of picking up like a souvenir program when you go to a movie theater. You'd have like some kind of, you know, it's a pretty sizable booklet with like, you know, information and interviews and so on, um, like, you know, 16 page kind of whole souvenir thing. And then sometimes you just get a little one sheet that's got stuff printed on both sides and that's a freebie. I think uh, when we saw Green Divers at the Gundam Museum, it's a little like, you know, just stuff on both sides. And it's like, here you go, free with purchase. So I assume something like that. I don't know exactly what the nature of the uh, souvenir sheet pamphlet would be for Igloo. And if there was like a
0: book. There are pictures of it. If you're interested online, listener, there are pictures of it. Um, I'm also super curious. Mark, have you ever bought a soft vinyl toy before?
2: No, no. The only time I've even been re- remotely tempted is when they did uh, like vinyl versions of the inflatable balloon dummies from
0: Shard's Counterattack. Hmm, that is tempting. I've, is it soft like a like a bath toy? Because I'm looking at photos online.
2: Uh, I I don't know for sure, um, but really that would that would hit me over the edge. I would I I would, Yahoo auction that thing if it was a squeaky
0: mobile suit dummy vinyl. But, or if it made the sounds they make an SD Gundam, those cute little sounds.
2: But now, I mean, as, as you can probably see from the background here, I have my hands full with just the Gunpla and the <laughs> replica animals and stuff. So, you know, I don't have room in my heart for vinyls. There's only one of me.
0: Now, If you're so interested, you can pick this up pretty cheap. Um, It was exclusive to the museum, at least initially. I don't know if it uh, it was released publicly after that. But I'm finding copies for like, not copies, but like uh, these toys online for like 10 bucks. So if you're so interested, and I'm like very tempted. If I saw this in the wild, like if I went to an anime convention and saw this, I would 100% pick it up. It's, It's very cute. While Igloo entered production largely free from the demands of model kit makers, that doesn't mean there weren't eventually toys made of the featured mobile suits. Bondi eventually released Gunplub branded with the distinctive gold Igloo logo, which for whatever reason capitalized only the M and L. Mark, this is as good a time as any to bring this up. Do you know why and where this logo originated?
2: Uh, no. I mean, the only thing I know about the titling is that it was... uh Kubo, the Bandai visual producer, who insisted they actually put MS Igloo into the preface. Uh, the
0: typography
2: is beyond me. I do feel like at some point we should actually mention why it's called MS glue, though.
0: I wish to do that right now because I'm curious too. I actually don't know the answer to ah, this.
3: Ah,
2: ah. Uh, so, an igloo is basically um, it's military slang for an ammunition depot. You have these like things that are shaped like rounded oh. igloos or like kind of maybe uh, like a long kind of tent kind of structure that you keep ammunition in. So it's basically they're using it synonymously with arsenal. This is like the MS arsenal. It's going to constantly be producing new stupid mm. super weapons. So there that we go. That makes sense. That's MS Igloo. Why it gets a capital L, I don't know.
0: I should be pretty used to and immune to stylistic choices like this as a fan of especially as a fan of Japanese video games, but even anime and manga too. Weird ass naming conventions are the norm.
2: Probably the one that I've just struggled to get used to is the um, the Gundam 00 movie A Awakening of the Trailblazer where it was really important that this be able that you could read this both Awakening and "Wakening," So you get two levels of nuance that kind of actually both mean the exact same thing. But as a result, we had to spell with a capital A, space, lowercase w. Because you're breaking the word awakening into two parts. It's not just, you know, the indefinite article followed by the word wakening. No, this is like, this is a fancy typographical thing.
0: Yeah, this is always, this always comes up internally for me when I am writing history notes. But sometimes your weird stylistic choices have become the norm. Like Gundam Seed, Seed is all capitalized, and that's pretty much accepted as how you write out Gundam Seed. Most fans write it out with capital S E E D. But then you get to other stuff, and it's much more debatable. Mark, you're about to jump <laughs> in there. I I could never get used to the idea of capitalizing Seed. I mean, really? I see it a lot.
2: Well, because you know, then part of the reason why people capitalize things like that is because it's the official title on the Japan side is written using Romanji characters. And usually when they do that, they use uppercase Romanji. So it's your your Mm. Kido-Senshi-Gandamu SEED. So you just drop it in all caps. Um, But they do that for, like, everything. When you get Kido-Senshi-Gandamu SEED DESTINY. And it's like, are you going to capitalize Destiny too? Are you going to capitalize SEED but not Destiny? It's just like... The... Honestly... I agree. The... The workaround that I use now, like, for my website, they just put titles in all caps so it doesn't stand out. So i have never faced with that problem. It's like, mobile, suit,
0: Gundam, seed, destiny,
2: all caps, no further questions, mic drop.
0: That's smart. That's why they pay you the big bucks, Mark. That's why I can go to Bondi Filmworks headquarters, name drop you, and everyone will know your name. It's like cheers there for you. <laughs> Now, obviously, as Mark pointed out earlier, you can snag yourself a high-grade Zuda, which looks dope, and an obligatory Zaku 2. There are some deeper cuts which came out later, like the Hadolfer, one of the Zeon tanks introduced in the first episode. Mark, you actually revealed to me there are more kits than I thought at first. Your list, your excellent timeline, highlighted a few other suits that were made into, suits and pieces of tech that were made into kits. Do
2: you want the complete rundown? I can just read off the list.
0: Yeah, there's not too many.
2: Well, this doesn't include the uh, Gundam collection minifigurines, actually. As, uh, they did a lot of MSA glue stuff in that kind of little 1-400th little rubber collectible toy scale as well, and I didn't even bother
0: listing those. Would I, would I purchase those in, like, a vending machine?
2: Um, Yeah, they were boxed, actually. They weren't in capsules, they were in, okay. like, okay. little boxes. I used to have a whole lot of those, and eventually I just like, ah, you know, you're just sitting in a tray, I'm kind of so you out in the world. But yeah, they did a lot of those in that lineup as well. <laughs> Setting that aside, so just Gunpla. Um, we had uh, December 2004, they did an EX model of the Moosai from, uh, from Igloo, which is really sweet. Uh, August 2005, which is basically around the point in time shortly after they started doing the uh, video releases, actually. Um, So they released uh, the first two episodes of Hidden One Year War on home video in uh, May uh, no, in April 2005, and then four months later, they did a uh, two-pack EX model of the uh, Salamis Magellan from that. And then uh, da-da-da then they did the uh, (laughs) <laughs> this is the one I want—the Gundam Collection Musai. So, the, around this time, they were doing this collectible series of little, tiny, like one-four-hundredth scale. So, wow, how big would that be? About, yay, big—a couple inch and a half, maybe. Um, collectible versions of all kinds of Gundam mobile suits, and that was small enough that you could actually plausibly do ships in that scale. I have the 1/400 scale white base that goes with the Gundam collection figures. It is humongous. It is like a yard long. And then they did the eye And like, I can't... Where would I put it? But the white base they did was conventional, like, classic style. You know, I could... I could probably wrestle it down from this shelf and wave it in front of the camera for the folks at home. If you really want to see me wave, like, a, a three-foot-long white base and from the screen here, in audio mode. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, but they did a Musai, and at that point I'm like, I'm giant shipped out, but the Musai was done in MSA glue style. So it's actually like a foot long, uh, no, longer than that, uh, 1 400 scale, 50 centimeters. Uh, so about a f- maybe a foot and a half kind of um, fully detailed MSA glue version Musai you can't get it now for love or money yeah. for a few is dollars. that
0: like building one of those $700 Lego sets of like an Imperial Star Destroyer is it that intricate putting it together
2: it's really not it's pretty easy to put together it was like a mass market item for toy collectors so you know it's not there's not that much involved in it but oh that would be a thing anyway where was I I was rhapsodizing by a giant moose eye that's the one that got away um, okay, 2006, March. Uh, They did an EX model of the Magella attack, which actually wasn't at that point tied in with MSA Glue. It was MSA Glue styled. I think Yamane did the design for it. And then it eventually showed up in, like, MSA Glue 2, I think, years later. Um, okay. Da-da-da-da. 2006, March. This is when Apocalypse 0079... The kind of back half of MSA glue starts coming out direct to video, and is followed uh, two months later, uh, June 2006, by the HGUC Zuda. So at this point, we're doing stuff for general audiences. Um, August 2006, they did a master grade ball with the shark mouth decals from the opening of episode three of MSA glue. So if you look at that and go, "Wow, here are these like you know here are these like ball pods." Who get scared off by uh, unarmed Zudas flying around them in circles? And I would want to commemorate that with a master grade kit of these guys with the actual shark mouth decal. Bandai had you covered. Yeah, um, let's see. The EX model Hildolfer and Oggo didn't come out until 2007. That's some time later. That's after the museum had closed. Uh, kind of in the lull between MSA glue. And original MSA Glue and MSA Glue 2. MSA Glue 2 starts coming in 2008. So it's just kind of just to keep the spirit alive in people's hearts. So you want an Argo, you want a Hilldolfer, giant Megatank, dorky pod, have that. Along the way there, this is kind of a neat confluence of events. <clears throat> okay. Since you've given me a platform, just nerd out about this, and since I have all this in a list, I'm just going to um, in uh, the end of August 2006, that's when they finished releasing uh, Apocalypse 0079. The last episode of that, uh, straight to video, came out at that point. MSA Glue now, the original six-part story, is done. Six days later, the Bandai Museum closes. So, okay. End of an era. No more, no more Classic Igloo. No more Bandai Museum. The next month... Um, September 2006 Bandai launches a new product line which is the UC Hardgrass series. These are 135th scale, so military model scale like super detailed recreations of like one year war props and vehicles and army men standing around in their uniforms reading maps and looking at stuff through binoculars. So complete and total pandering to military modelers. It's like In the scale scale you like, the kind of stuff you like, but for Gundam. And that kind of goes on for a while as a product line that's aimed at like super nerds, military model otaku, kind of MSV fan, Imanishi types. And when they eventually launch MSA Glue 2, it's basically a showcase for those kits. It's like, here they are, animated in the MSA Glue style. So, if we step back from that recitation... There's a transition here. We have the museum opens. We create these short films to draw people off, you know, away from Tokyo onto the train out to Matsudo. Come see this thing. We have kind of an eventual video release, uh, so people a year later, so people can actually watch it at home or rent it or whatever. And then you get gunpla and toys, so you can kind of physicalize your experience even if you've never been to the museum even if you wouldn't consider going to the museum and kind of start bringing bringing MS Igloo home with you and then you have a phase where the museum closes the original series is over now it's shifted completely into gunpla that's targeted at military scale modelers and then eventually you restart the Igloo brand as a kind of almost a living toy commercial for those kits so you have this morphing thing. What MSA glue is, what it's for, who it's aimed at, what the product pitch is, is kind of constantly evolving and morphing and changing and distorting over a span of about five years. Um, that's my product recitation. Thank you all for coming to my TED Talk.
0: <laughs> Your check from Bandai is in the mail, Mark.
2: Buy more merch!
0: I'm just looking at uh, pictures uh, of the Zuda now. Um, this I was looking this up because the we'll talk about this more when we get there in igloo. Uh, the design is sick. Uh, it's funny because I know this information, but you listeners don't. We have some fun guests coming on. To oh wait, Mar- Mark is now holding up the white base. The one four hundred scale. White- like, like two cool. foot
2: long, I guess. Yeah, it's pretty big.
0: Got opening? Can you open it up? Back. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, Just
2: like need the catapult.
0: the you have the catapult to shoot him out? Yeah,
2: and uh, you can actually take off panels to reveal like storage space, so you can use this as a toy holder for all your Gundam collection figures. There's a little Gun parry oh, in the nice. core deck. Honestly, I know this makes for great radio. Is uh, watching somebody you've never met wave around a two-foot-long uh, toy white base that's packed full of uh, tiny rubber collectible robots. Uh, this is this is ra- this is radio, people. This is like a high point in the art form. <laughs> <laughs> pew pew pew. All right, carry on.
0: I'm just imagining you at the dinner table with your wife, uh, going through the the design schematics of the white base, detailed bullet point bite. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying before when I was reaching out to people uh, to guest on, so many people like went, "Yeah, I'll guest on Igloo. I want the Zuda episode." (laughs) So the Zuda is very popular. Uh, It's also it's in stock, like it's it's still in print. It's well circulated. You could easily buy a kit if you wanted for like thirty bucks. I'm sure there's been reprints and new editions of the Zuda, and we'll talk more about that soon enough. All right, but there's more merchandise, people. Like It's not all. So get ready to take a drink, because this would not be a giant robot FM history episode without the state-mandated mention of a Gundam Ace tie-in manga. This one is called Mobile Suit Gundam MMSA Glue 603, 603rd, and was written and illustrated by Meimu, the nom de plume of Ko Uchiyama. Mark is currently pointing to his copy. Uchiyama worked with Sunrise before, he did the four-volume Gasaraki manga and would return for future Igloo adaptations. Igloo 603 debuted in the January 2005 issue of Gundam Ace, where it ran for approximately a year. It was later collected in two Tonkabons. Unfortunately, it has yet to receive an English translation, official or otherwise. However, the folks over at Xeonic Scanlations have a helpful summary. 603, quote, Adapted two of the three episodes while introducing new stories of its own, work on this comic version was done with assistance from the main series staff. The mobile suits that appeared in this version were designed by Takayuki Yanase. One of the unique things about this work is the anti-ship rifle that appears as original equipment and was later attached to the gunpla of the Zuda and subsequently made its way into games and general use. End quote. Mark, anything you want to add? Have you read this manga? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm actually, I was looking,
2: I was flipping through here looking for something on the, uh, anti-ship rifle. It's in here somewhere. Um, so I think the most interesting thing I came across, oh yeah, there we go, there's the, uh, anti-ship rifle, uh, designed by Yanase. Need. Uh, which kind of is used in the comic by the, uh, Gem Kamuf, which is a fake gym built by the Zeon, so it can basically sneak up and ambush, uh, Federation Mobile
0: Suits. Oh, that's Um, cool.
2: But the cool thing I discovered about this yesterday when I was looking through this is um, the storyline of the Gem Kamuf, this kind of fake Jim that's like a Xeon mobile suit in disguise. Uh, This is an original story in the manga, but it was based on something that was actually being considered for the uh, OVA series. Um, so Izabuchi explains that uh, it was a plot he came up with for a seventh episode of MS Igloo. It would have actually fit kind of into the middle of Apocalypse 0079, right between like the Zagok episode and then the finale. And so he actually got as far as designing the character for it, who would have been the only like, female ace pilot in the Igloo series. And uh, they decided to cut Igloo down from seven episodes to six, but uh, they handed off the story and the character designs to memu so they could at least bring it to life in the comic adaptation. So uh, there's a pedigree behind that filler story. It's called, like, The Bat Flies at Solomon, I think. So it's this entire manga original story that was actually an unused plot from Igloo itself. It's kind of neat to know. They... Wader did a a one-volume adaptation of Apocalypse 0079 just to finish off the series, but that's really just a straight blow-by-blow adaptation of the uh, animated Igloo and doesn't have much new stuff in it.
0: Now, on the topic of the manga, for those of you listeners at home keeping score, you might be wondering how far along Origin was when 603 debuted. Well, you're in luck. I have that information. About halfway through his odyssey, Yaz had just ventured into the prequel material. And remember, Gundam Ace debuted with the origin, so we're five years into both Gundam Ace and the origin. The cover of the January 2005 issue features a young Casval, Artegia, and Lucifer, if you remember the cat, in the cockpit of a gun tank early type. So still five more years to go of origin, but it's interesting to see how far along it was now before we close off this merchandising section mark you mentioned a novelization earlier i had no idea there was an igloo novelization my mind was kind of blown when you showed it to me i was like what it,
2: so far as i know they only did a novelization of the first part of the hidden one-year war i don't think there was a apocalypse 0079 novelization
0: okay okay
2: um and it's really, man, it's just its a transcript of what you see in the show. I don't think it really adds any new material. Um, it was written by um, yeah, Joji Hayashi, who'd done novelizations of a bunch of other um, like video, Gundam video games and so on. It was basically just kind of the guy who you have novelize your Gundam product. So, I don't Mm -hmm. think it's terribly remarkable in the way that, say, the G Savior novels are. I don't think you're going to get a lot of insights out of it. It wasn't written by an insider with particular access to anything. Uh, The illustrations are pretty cute. I think this illustrator did stuff for um, Gundam. Oh, for one of those, like, part work surreal magazines. I'm rambling. I don't have that much to say about it. It's mostly just that there's an afterword by Imanishi where he talks about how Igloo got started. And I'm just randomly flipping through this yesterday and I'm like, stop the presses. This is good stuff. But otherwise, it's it's a
0: tie-in novel. I'm glad you brought that up though because that novel has like no footprint on the internet or at least it didn't appear in any of my searches. And I like to be as completionist as I can with stuff like this. Let's talk about some home video releases. Like the content screened at other museums, like the Ghibli Museum shorts, MS Igloo did receive home video releases. In America, Bondi Visual released a set of Igloo DVDs which collect OVA 1 and 2 in 2007 under its Anamese label. For more information about these deluxe releases, see our Gunbuster History episode. To sum up, Bondi Visual sought to apply the same attention and care criterion gave its de- gave to its releases, packaging each DVD with supplemental content and deluxe packaging. In fact, they went so far as to partner with Image Entertainment, best known for their distribution of the Criterion Collection Laserdisc, to create and distribute these releases. And it shows, the Igloo DVD is chock full of goodies. I picked up both of them on eBay. For a reasonable sum of about $60, so if you're so interested, they can be acquired, and it's not going to cost you too much money. Some of these Bondi visual releases are quite expensive, like the Gunbuster release, which retails for over $200. These are much cheaper to come by. There's not too much extra content on the disc. However, it does come packaged with a 23-page booklet that includes episode summaries, character bios, mobile suit profiles, and an extensive interview with Imanishi. The booklet was invaluable in my research for this episode. I'm also going to make sure to sprinkle some fun factoids throughout the rest of our coverage, too. As Mark would put it, I'm sprinkling some science in there. Some fakey, fake-ass science. The best sort of science. It's worth pointing out that the Bondi Visual DVD and other future English language releases are sub-only. However... It wouldn't be a Gundam history episode without talking about a lost dub. George Cahill III, an American voice actor, has confirmed that he recorded lines for the role of Martin Proc- Prochnow. Mark, am I pronounced that right? Prochnow,
2: Prochnow, I think, like Yurgan Prochnow from Death Boot. I assume that's where they. There you go.
0: Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um. So he, he quote. Who recorded lines in August 2007 through August 2008 in Singapore for Odex, end quote. Odex, who are still around, licenses and releases anime for local and regional Southeast Asian consumption. It's been theorized that this dub never aired on Singapore TV, and rather that Odex was hoping to license it out, but was shot down by Sunrise. It wouldn't be the first Gundam dub that has become Lost Media. See the first Gundam film trilogy and that Southeast Asian Double Zeta dub. Up until a week ago, I didn't think this dub was accessible. I won't say how. It arrived in my uh, Discord messages and I was not expecting it to be dubbed. And I'm like, shit, the Odex dub is on here. Um, Somehow fans got their hands on it and synced it up to the blu-ray rips normally at this point i throw it to pmc to give a rundown of the voice actors but outside of george cahill the and maybe his father there's a george cahill fourth on the anime news network um page for this we don't have a cast list um but pmc why don't you give our listeners a taste of the odex dub
4: i understand your ship was caught up in an altercation As long as it's for the sake of our country, I don't care if it is a rusty old tin can, it still needs to do its part, too.
3: And you are?
4: Captain Monique Cadillac reporting. I'm honored to meet you. Uh, Hello!
1: I'm reporting, too. Lieutenant Washia, technical evaluation.
4: The Musai fought the battle very bravely and did her best to complete the government's assignment. Honestly, I do wonder about your judgment, sir. By attempting an evacuation before retrieving valuable property owned by the Principality, you were risking a total loss. My pleasure to meet you, sir. Captain Martin Procknow, civilian commander of the Jotunheim.
2: I've had my fair share of difficult customers like you, young lady. Bear in mind this used to be a civilian transport ship.
1: There you are. It looks like the entire staff is present. The 603 technical unit is now complete.
2: Remember. I have very high expectations of the newly formed 603.
0: More recently, Sunrise collected all nine Igloo episodes spanning three series on a single Blu-ray release. Nozomi Entertainment, a former subsidiary of Right Stuff, RIP, released Igloo on Blu-ray on July 11th, 2017. Unfortunately, this release with the exception of a textless Opening and closing theme doesn't include any of the supplemental content featured on the Bondi visual release, but it's still in circulation and not too expensive, so that's a plus. Final thoughts. So, Mark, we're wrapping up. I want to pose you the final question, you have actually seen Igloo. What, and this is a big question, I suppose, uh, maybe a little less existential than who are you. Um, What do you think the legacy of Igloo is? Um, Critically, it's not held in as high a regard as other Gundam OVAs, but it's still part of the conversation.
2: Ah, you know... It's not, unlike, say, G Savior, it's not something I personally have warm fuzzies for. Um, but I think there's maybe two things I'd say about it. Uh, it's obviously a link in the chain of kind of the integration of computer animation into the robot show, and Gundam more specifically. You can draw a straight line from. G-Savior, through Gundam Evolve, to MS Igloo, to ultimately um, that thing, Gundam The Origin, it almost seems like Imanishi segued pretty directly from doing MS Igloo 2 into The Origin. And I think when you see how the mobile suits are depicted in Igloo, there's a through line there leading to what you see in uh, The Origin videos. So that's it's an evolutionary link, clearly. They're hashing out some stuff. I also feel it represents maybe the extreme form of a tendency. They never really kind of they didn't really go much further in the vein of full CG as applied to Gundam until maybe some of the stuff that's gonna come out in you know, in the coming years. But that kind of... They, I think they pushed that envelope as far as they could for a while. And I feel it also represents the very, very, very ultimate hypertrophied form of extreme military fetishism as, like, the driving thing in a Gundam production. There are aspects of that in 0080 and 0083, where these are clearly being made by people who think way more about World War II than is perhaps healthy. And that gets dialed up and up and up, like all the way to 11 in Igloo. It is so totally a work of like World War II military fandom. It's almost hard for me to look at it and see the Gundam. I'm getting here into kind of the evaluation stuff that you'll be doing in your coming coverage. I don't want to kind of, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to kind of put my thumb on the scale too heavily and go, well, as the Gundam expert, I say you must be... The no, no. I I can't wait to see how you and your future guests react to this stuff. But if you're asking me for kind of what I think the significance is, I feel like in some respects this pushed the aspect of pandering to military otaku through Gundam as far as they ever could without like going completely off the rails. This, when I kind of connected this to the uh, dioramas and photo stories from like hobby magazines, the orig- what made Gunpla huge in the 80s was it created a bridge from the world of kiddie shows with giant robots fighting you know, allies of justice. And it kind of created a bridge to the world of high schools who were really into military scale modeling and kind of brought them into the community. And over the decades, that was, became a constituency for Gundam. There was a chunk of Gundam who were in it because it's like World War II with, with robots, and I can build dioramas of it. The MSV series was catering to them. Every now and then, they'd throw them a bone. They'd do something it was for those guys. You know, EE3 is kind of for those guys. And MSA Glue is so completely for those guys. They never really did anything with so much for that chunk of Gundam fandom ever again. There are aspects of it. There's a little touch of that still in the uh, you know, there's a little, little, little touch of that in Igloo. There's maybe a stronger whiff of it in the Origin animation. Uh, partly, I'm sure because Imanishi's involved. But this was the maximum World War II nut version of Gundam. And I think it's, maybe that's part of the reason why I don't I don't have the affection for it. I do for something that's just like utopian sci fi like G Savior. It's a place where I don't think you'd ever see Tomino go, but it's a place where clearly a lot of the fan base at that point in time wanted to see Gundam go, and
0: they sure went there. So that's my feeling about it. And it seems they're going there again with. Oh, I just had it up. Uh, Gundam, The Requiem. It says more too in the title. The new CGI six-episode show, I've told from the Xeon perspective. Just looking over. They haven't really released too much information on the team that's developing it, but Yamani's doing the mecha, some of the mecha designs. I'm curious if there'll be any more staff overlap. I mean, DID's not doing it. Actually, on that note, DID is still around. I forgot to mention this earlier. Obviously, Sunrise has gone through a lot of internal reshuffling, I imagine DID doesn't look exactly like it did 10, 15, 20 years ago, um, but technically, at least in name, it still exists. Uh, it went, had a name change in 2020. It's now Sunrise Digital Creation Studio. Imanishi is not there anymore. I think the only thing he's doing, we talked about this in our Igloo epi- or in our, in our Origin episode, he's doing a eighty three manga, and obviously some of the other people have retired, but I'm sure there are a few f- familiar faces still there. It's a Japanese company, so there's got to be someone from the early days still there. Let's talk to the janitor when you're there. Well, Mark, that re- very well said. Thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to checking out Igloo. I'm kind of neutral on it right now because I'm not... I have a feeling how I'll feel by the end of the three episodes. I think our three guests are pretty warm on Igloo overall. People have some strong thoughts about Igloo, but certainly not as... They don't feel as strongly as other shows so it hasn't like pushed me in a certain direction um, regarding how i feel about it just yet i'm just more like neutral like i'm interested to check this out i do find that cg er, cg from that era very charming as i talked about in our g savior episode so maybe that some of that charm will wear off on me i got through five seasons of clone wars i can do three episodes of igloo all right mark tell the people where they could find you, which I guess is a little more limited now.
2: (laughs) Uh, I know. In in, in, in the gentle blowing of the breeze and the smile on a child's face, you split a a log and I'll be there. I don't know. Um, I still have my website. That's ultimatemark.com. And the Gundam stuff I'm doing tends to end up under ultimatemark.com slash Gundam. Main thing I'm working on there is these internal production history things right now i'm kind of almost to the end of doing v gundam i'm not sure what i'll work on next but that involves a lot of your production art and translated interviews and bric-a-brac um i am on blue sky very few people are (laughs) at least in in the sector of the fandom i think people have a foothold there and it's not but it's not a conversation space really for the kind of stuff we're talking about here uh, I think I'm like Toys Dream, yeah, social or whatever. However, that addressing works. But I'm Toys Dream there, like I am everywhere. Um. And uh, I know I have an Instagram that I post to once in a blue moon. If you want to see me draw cars and bugs, that's like Ultima Toy uh, at Instagram. I know. Lives. And I'm here, physically, in my office in San Francisco, surrounded by toys. So it gives me a base of operations. It's like the Garden of Thorns in 0083. I've kind of withdrawn into my safe space, and at some point I'll come barreling out and
0: create havoc again.
2: (laughs) I continue to exist. I survive.
0: That's always good to know. And to be fair, you might make another giant robot FM appearance before long. We are covering the first three episodes of Igloo. I have a feeling we might be covering the back half of that initial igloo series episodes four through six before maybe the end of 2024 mark we'd love to have you back on for that not to put pressure on you while we're recording oh, feels free to say now, to
2: say oh, now. Oh. oh gosh i mean it would, you know or we could just chat about how big bugs should be and stuff like that it's just nice to nice to have the nerd talk so we you might have them. to
0: because there's left less, less <laughs> information i imagine on those i always say that and then i managed to spin together five thousand words on
2: yeah a no, we're gonna run district. dry it'll be like Fifty minutes of like chit chat and then work. Like, so, what are you up to these days? Oh well, you know whatever. I saw it's really interesting brick, and uh, you know, have you ever really looked into the mineral composition of bricks? It's a fascinating topic, and you know, we'll just do that for three hours. Um, you know, it's, it's good to chat. Thank you, Stephen and PMC, for having me on again. Always a pleasure, always a delight. Love the show. Uh, love getting to talk about these sort of stupid, ridiculous things with you. And to anybody at home who's still listening, even after all this nonsense, thank you so much for bearing with us and for letting me wave all my cool toys around in front of your radio. Um, It's been a pleasure chatting with you as well. Be good to each other.
0: All right, PMC, tell the good people where they could find us. And also think of a clever stinger because I'm going to (laughs) throw it your way. Well, we
1: will will get there when we get there, but... Uh in the meanwhile, of course, if you're looking for more giant robot fm information, uh you know, you can find those accounts on Twitter, on Blue Sky. Those are kind of the main bases that we operate out of. There is accounts at Giant Robot Fm, or I guess for Blue Sky, that's giantrobotfm.bsky.social. You can find us on there. That's where we'll be posting all that information. Of course, you can find the podcast distributed on typically any podcast platform of your choice. There are fewer and fewer of them as the days go on. If you want to help us out, one great way to help us out is to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, We will be continuing, of course, the Igloo coverage, as we've mentioned a number of times during this episode, we will be reviewing, we'll be doing singular episodes on each of the first three episodes of this first OVA of the, the hidden one year war. So look forward to that. We have some exciting guests that we'll be bringing on for that. And then after that, our remaining main feed coverage for 2023 will be some history episodes and discussion concerning the Goron Lagan compilation film. So please look forward to that. Uh, if you want to support us directly, monetarily, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash giant FM. We have some patron exclusive stuff there. We have a patron exclusive discord. We have a bonus podcast series called Moon Race Wireless, where we are tackling turn a Gundam. Uh, two episodes a month. We are about ten episodes into that. We actually, as of the day of recording, just put up episode ten. The first four episodes of Moon race Wireless are on the free main feed. So if you want to check that out, see how that coverage goes. Check those out. If you like it, go to patreoncom slash fm We also have a series on Mecha video games, where we give Mecha video games the same treatment that we give Mecha anime. Uh, a bunch of those are also in the main feed so if you want to listen to the production history of armored core or front mission check those out uh, we have some pa- episodes that are still patron exclusive right now on assault suits Falcon. so if you want to check those free episodes out and then get those patron exclusive episodes again patreon.com slash currently in the pipe our next simulator episode will be on front mission gun hazard uh, which has like a little bit of crossover of today's discussion because that has some of the uh, some musical heavy hitters. We said Uematsu in this episode, and Uematsu is one of the primary composers for Gun Hazard. Uh, quite delightful, really. I just started playing that game last night. Very cool game. So look forward to us talking about the production of Gun Hazard and also talking about playing it on a future simulator episode. I want to give credit to Dwarf S for our graphic design, credit to Skin for our art, and credit to Fretzel hashtag band fretzel for the music that we use now Steven previously when I mentioned that we were going to be covering this I mistakenly referred to this OVA as straight just mobile suit Gundam igloo MSG igloo Now it is not MSG igloo it is MS igloo which at the time we we mentioned obviously what it must stand for it must stand for Mark Simmons igloo